You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 77. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. <laughs> this is at codingblocks.net. We can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Freelancers and small business owners, I feel for you. Tax season is here and there's a good chance that many of you are trying to dig your way out from underneath a pile of receipts and spreadsheets. Do yourself a huge favor and stop digging. Before you completely disappear under that abyss of paperwork, go and check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. Not only is it going to save you a ton of time and stress, it might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes. Need to send your accountant a quick summary on the amount of tax you collected last year? How about pulling together a profit and loss summary? FreshBooks can generate these reports in seconds instead of the hours it would take you to do them manually. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means next time you use your debit card for that meal, tank of gas, or new computer, boom, the purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks. All this and FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use. It's made especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers and their taxes. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding and enter coding space blocks in the how did you hear about us section. All right. With that, it's time for our podcast news. And we always like to start off with reviews. And with that, Jay-Z, you want to take iTunes? I do. So uh, iTunes, thank you big time to Frodo McNuggets, (laughs) 007 Benny. (laughs) I'm already cracking up. (laughs) Likely suspect. Marcus Raspich, Alex13CP, uh, the Clink family, especially big thank you to the Clink family. That was, that was awesome. An amazing <laughs> review. Uh, Chris Sean Hayes, uh, Deleted, Grim42, and Zach Reeves. Yep. And on Stitcher, we have Roca88, Destructs, <laughs> The Code Itself, Joe is Dev for Life. Uh, huge thank you guys. Uh, great names too. <laughs> Some <laughs> awesome ones in there. I really yep. appreciate it. So it's that time of year again where Stack Overflow announces their 2018 survey results or their survey results for 2018. Um, did you guys, either of you guys see this yet? I have not looked at it. There were some really interesting things that came out of it. Um, what do you think? What do you think the most popular framework library or tool is? Well, hold on. Let me go ahead and open this up and I'll tell you. Oh, geez. No, I, uh, I'm going to guess Node.js. Go ahead. Node.js. I'd probably go with that as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But here was the one that I didn't expect to come out on top above when, well, you know, set for second place. Angular beat out React. You know, we saw that in the survey we did for uh, JetBrains licenses not yeah. too long back. Yeah, it. I, I guess it doesn't surprise me because Google's had had quite the fight. And remember, React just recently went to a more accessible license, mm-hmm. so a lot of companies probably wouldn't even touch them for that reason. So, yeah, maybe it was it was a pretty big one though. But um, man, I'm trying to think what were some other things in here. Like, uh, m- you know, most most popular database. I thought that one kind of went, you know. It, 
I was more, I, I expected number one. So you my can sequel? Guess it. Yep. My sequel was number one. Okay. I was actually kind of surprised to see SQL Server was the second Not most popular. Yeah. And Oracle was like way down the list. Postgres was number three, I take it. Yep. 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 Um, I have not cheated. <laughs> I've got three. You've got you've got three what? I've got three things I was going to call out on the survey. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so go if ahead. you were still scrolling through, I was going to go ahead and go. Uh, how much time do developers spend on a computer? You guys want to guess Is an this hour per week or what? Oh gosh, you know it doesn't say. I assume it was per day. No, it was I, per day. Okay. I remember okay. that one. Per, per day? day, I'm going to say eleven hours. Uh, outlaw. I, I remember looking at that one, but I don't remember. I think it was in like the, it was a range given. It was given as a range, if I remember right. Uh, so it okay. was like nine to 12 or something like that. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes so sense. So yeah, nine to 12, uh, 52% of uh, developers spend nine to 12 hours a day at a computer. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. But I, I mean, I totally do. So yeah. <laughs> and, and along that one too, I thought this one was interesting that um, kind of, we'll, we'll get to the survey results from the last one, but uh, you know, healthy habits. How often do you exercise? Right? Like we asked the same type of question, not worded the same way, but I, I thought like, oh, that's that's uh interesting timing. Yep. I mean, I'm sure we influenced their their, their <laughs> But survey. of course we did, right? <laughs> right. I mean, surely they, they I mean, looked st- stack overflow is not that big. All right. Yeah, I mean you how might that, how that one end up. Um, I, I, we'll save that conversation for, okay. uh, for later, but, um, yeah, there was another one here. I was trying to get in here too. Like most dreaded framework or language. Most dreaded objective C. Visual basic. Ooh, Visual basic Co- six. Really? What about COBOL? Number two. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know what number one might be. JavaScript did it hit number one in all the categories? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> wow. Well, well, it, here's one though, because uh, most dreaded framework. You know, we said that Angular was number two. Angular was number four for the most dreaded framework. So, I but they're they're probably referring to version one dot x. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, they Stack Overflow didn't specify yeah. because also on that list was Node.js. Really? Which Node.js was number one before. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so, it's fair. Kind of, so JavaScript kind of is sprinkled in there. Most it's dreaded database? Uh, Mongo. DB2. Mongo. Mongo. And what'd you say, Joe? DB2. Yep. DB2. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, and number two was Oracle. Oracle. Really? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What about what do you think the most popular IDE is? Stack Overflow. Know your audience. Um, I, know, I know the answer. It, it's going to be Visual Studio. Visual Studio? Yeah. You're wrong. Really? It was Visual Studio Code. Code. Dog yeah. on it. Yeah. But not by much. Visual, Visual Studio was number two, and yeah, it was okay. it was close. Now, here's where it gets... We, we've had this conversation before. Let's round out the top five. What do you think number three, number four, number five were? These are going to be hard, right? Um, JetBrains, JetBrains, JetBrains. Okay. There's his answer. Sublime. Okay. Uh, what's the... Is it Adam? The, the, okay, the, Adam. Yeah, Sublime, Adam, and Vim. Okay. Well, you did really good, man. You got two out of those three, and I did not expect that. I did not see that coming. Sublime was number four, okay, and Vim is number five. And we've had this conversation about like, hey, is it just a text editor? You know, are these things just text editors right. or are they IDEs? And 
you know, they're in this IDE conversation. Notepad++ is the one you forgot oh, at number wow. three. That makes sense. I mean, it's a great little tool. I wouldn't call it an IDE, but, you know. Wow. Now, like, Adam, what are the Java developers that aren't answering the survey? Like, what right. side are they using? Well, IntelliJ was number six. Okay. It was on the list. And Android Studio was next, and Eclipse was... Uh, so, your, your next three, so six, seven, and eight, were all uh, Java development platforms. Awesome. Okay. So... They were they were there. All yeah. right. How about how about we've asked a question about multiple monitors? Oh yeah. What do you think? What do you think the Stack Overflow respondents? Sixty percent. Yes. No, no, no. Do they have one, two, three, four, five monitors? Oh, I'm going to say two's the the predominant, the norm. Yeah. Fifty-one okay. percent two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was the next one? Uh, that's what I would think. The, yes, one monitor was was definitely the. Uh, the next one. Yeah, there there yep. were a bunch of interesting things on here, though. I don't. What were the other ones that you were going to bring up, Joe? Uh, most pop- popular technologies. Uh, what do you think the uh, top three were for most popular on uh, Stack Overflow survey? C sharp. This could be language. This could be JavaScript. That's is definitely going to be up JavaScript. There. JavaScript C-sharp. number one at seventy percent, and there's a, there's overlap with 70? the percentages. Yes, wow. but seventy percent. I mean, seventy percent of people said yes to JavaScript was multi-select. C sharp, uh, HTML, and CSS were number two and three. Oh, really? Wow. So, ja- yep. so it's literally all web. <laughs> like it's almost predominantly web. Hmm. Yep. And it's funny to think like if you're if you're on Stack Overflow, you're probably a web developer, and you probably work with Microsoft and uh, JavaScript. Yep. It's kind of interesting. Think- okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just have one more. Yep. All right. What is it? Uh, what do developers use to stay comfortable while working? And uh, this is another multi-select, but I, I thought the numbers were were really uh, interesting. So 52% of respondents said they had an ergonomic keyboard or mouse. Mm. So, okay, higher than it was 10 years ago, five years ago, no even, doubt. I would say. Yeah. Uh, 50% with Sandy Desk. Really? That's a 50%. lot, dude. Yeah. Because that's not like, a cheap most investment, right? Workplaces? Yeah, man. Yeah. That's so I thought that was crazy. Like, wow, like, well, where, where is everybody working? <laughs> <laughs> I need to go there. No. <laughs> yeah, I am standing right now at my sanity desk. That's awesome. Uh, wrist hand supports, 22%. And fatigue relieving mat, which I also have, 12%. Those are important. Those really are. <laughs> yeah, I even wear shoes on my mat. Yeah. What do you think the uh, <clears throat> most popular way developers learn on their own is? video video okay like, uh, like getting started guides getting started the official documentation and or standards for the technology was number one wow two was questions and answers on stack overflow and then three were like books from other like o'reilly or you know other public so video wasn't even in the top three that's interesting yeah no i was actually kind of surprised by that one too so yeah what about why do people participate? What do you think the number one answer people participate, why they participate in a hackathon? Uh, networking. networking. <laughs> nope. You're way down the list. That would actually be the fifth answer. So it's actually to learn skills. Nope. That would be the number two answer. Come on. What's all right. Hold number on. one answer. Prizes. prizes. Uh, no, that was actually the last place. Come answer. on. <laughs> you guys are like all over the map here. This is great. 
That would have been like what the seventh answer. The seventh answer was uh, for the prize. I think Joe and I have said the same thing for every every slot. Uh, yeah, I think he's just watching your mouth and he's like, "What's he gonna say?" No more prizes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Um, no, the n- number one answer was because I find it enjoyable. Okay. Yeah. Do things because you All love right. it. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about like um, how many developers are students? Uh, is this a number or percentage? Right now? Percentage. Like, this is a percentage. Percentage of the respondents to the survey. 12%. 12% are students. 35. 35% are students. Well, um, you're closer, but you're Price still off. Right. Doggone it. Uh, developer students, 74% were no. So. 26. Yeah, the remaining 26-ish percent were in the yes, either full-time or part-time categories. Hmm. That's that's cool stuff. I'm gonna go check out that thing. Uh, we'll uh, if you guys have anything interesting that you find on there, drop us a, a comment on the show notes. Because I mean, it, it is fun stuff. And and actually, so I, all right, I know Jay Z's got something up next, but mine flows well into this one. So I'm going to steal this particular slot. So this kind of goes hand in hand with what we had talked about on the previous episode, where like languages that are dying, you know, those type of things. And we got several comments on that particular thing that we spoke about on on episode 76, so like Joseph, Keegan, Nicholas. So I think one thing to note, and, and we've mentioned this before, right? Like at no point are we actually meaning any kind of dogging on any particular language. And, and to a certain degree, I do also believe that predicting which languages are going to die is sort of silly, right? Like I think, I think it was, uh, Nicholas who actually said that this is silly. And, and I agree. It is interesting though to take a look at what, what the trends are in the market so that if you go to learn something, you know, what are the hottest ones, right? Like, do you want to invest your time in something that, that may not be as marketable? Now that I think that's not silly, but predicting whether or not something's going to be around in a year or whatever, like it's, it's hard to say, right? I mean, it's almost like predicting whether or not your Bitcoin's going up or down today. So. You know, I I wanted to say that just kind of to put it out there, like, you know, we talk about these things because we find these articles and it's just interesting stuff to talk about. But by no means take that as a, as a hit to, you know, if you're working in a company, and you're doing great things with Haskell or whatever, right? Does that mean you should stop doing it if some survey out there said, hey, this is no longer relevant? No, man, like that doesn't make sense. So, you know. Just, just wanted to put it out there because, you know, I, I know people have gotten upset about, you know, us playing around with PHP or, or something <laughs> like that in the past. And that's by no means what we intend to do. We're going to joke about it. We joke about C Sharp, right? Well, not as much because we love it. But, you know. Do we? I, I do. <laughs> I mean, you got to diversify, right? It just makes sense. Yeah. It, you think of it like an investment. So it makes sense, like, no matter what language you're in, to at least have some JavaScript on your resume. Apparently, 70% of developers are working with it. Man, that's So that would be a good one. Yeah. But I mean, especially if you're on those lists, like it doesn't mean it's a bad language. It doesn't mean it's right, whatever, but it's something to consider, you know, for managing your career that, you know, you do want to make sure that you've got like a, something that you could pivot if you need to. Yeah. All right. So now back to yours, seeing as I, I leapfrogged you. Yeah. All good. Um, this past weekend I had the, uh, the, um, honor of hosting a, uh, productivity and tech roundtable. We got a couple of people on uh, a zoom which we're using right now. And we talked about differences between programmers and management and what it meant for programmers who want to move to management or maybe why programmers don't want to um, go into management. And so it was a really interesting talk. We had um, Will from Complete Developer um, 
Also, um, Darren, uh, Active Fire, we talked about several times, and of course, hosted the show. So if you're uh, interested in that topic, then you should go check out this YouTube video. We'll have a link in the show notes. Awesome. Man, I wish I had made that. It was just kind of at an inconvenient time on Saturday because I would have loved to have been a part of that topic. But what were you What were you doing uh, the week before, man? Come on. <laughs> I was a little bit busy, right, uh, out at the uh, Microsoft MVP Summit, which basically just drained you of it, – it's an amazing time. You meet some awesome people. By the way, if anybody knows Brandon Sargent, you know – Seek him out, or Brandon Padgett, I'm sorry, not Sergeant, Brandon Padgett, seek him out and ask him to show you some yo-yo tricks. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> we, we had a great conversation, but dude, like, I, I was like a little kid watching him. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just an awesome time and drinking through a fire hose of information, but coming back and losing three hours from Seattle to the East Coast and then getting kicked in the teeth with daylight savings time has been a little rough, but you know, it, it was, it was an awesome week. And we might have a tip or two in the uh, in the tip section here that kind of came from some of that information. So hang around. All right. And uh, can you guys hear my mouse, by the way? I know it's been kind of loud lately. Is there anything I can do about that? Oh, man. So check this out. suggestions for me? All right. So check this out, guys. This came up because Outlaw was like, man, in the previous episode, your mouse was just like a shotgun going off, right? I mean, I didn't sound like that. He might have said that. (laughs) Hey, man, your mouse is like really loud. Hey, I don't have that much space in my voice. (laughs) Um, All right. So at my house, like I, I literally have my PC in front of me. And then right next to me is my wife's gaming PC slash whatever, right? And my kids will want to play arc and if you know anything about arc or any game that a kid plays it's literally they just want to keep biting and shooting and hitting things right and so they just click 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 and i literally almost lost my mind one day and i was like there's got to be such a thing as a silent mouse and sure enough there is so i ended up buying one i'll have a link to the amazon thing i think it's like 16 bucks or 17 bucks it's not 20 bucks all right so maybe it went up since um but man oh I can't even hear it. It is blissful. It's right next to me. I know they're clicking it a thousand times per minute, and I don't hear it. And it is the most amazing feeling on the planet not to hear that thing. So It looks cool, too. Yeah, the shape of it isn't great. I I don't, like, anytime I've used it, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel substantial, but it, it serves its purpose. So, you know, if you want a silent mouse, I've got, I've got a link for you. Uh, the promotional picture's got like a guy in a laptop in bed next to uh, his, his spouse and he's here clicking away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd do that, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> what are you looking at, honey? Oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was quiet. Go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is the last episode for reals about uh, clean architecture. So this is your last chance probably for a while to uh, leave a comment on the episode and win that particular book. So we'll probably be doing cool stuff in the future. I don't know. Stay tuned. But if you want to win a picture, uh, a picture, a copy of um, Clean Architecture, and that's international too. You guys are awesome. Yep. And uh, yeah, just leave a comment and we will pick one. And we will email yeah. you a picture of the book. Yeah. So be prepared. <laughs> so I mean, I'm extra awkward tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And by the way, we've mentioned this before. If you do have anything like if you're, you know, pining for that pro site subscription or you have any books that you're interested in, go check out our codingblocks.net slash resources. We put things up there that we personally really like and use. And if you are planning on buying any of that stuff, you know, please click those links on that page. It won't cost you any more. In some cases, it might actually save you money and you'll be helping support the show. So 
you know, thank you for that. And with that, it's time to start. Yep. Now, so you going to is it me is it is it you're breaking up okay i could do this all day so so let's get started with services great and small so there's this little buzzword out there about uh you know where well, there's a couple of them service oriented architectures and microservices right and they're they're all the rave right or I think we've talked about how like maybe there's the uh, the backlash now on the microservice architecture. Yeah, and yep. and you'll typically see this thing listed as like SOA for service oriented architecture. And I don't know, is there an acronym for the microservices? I don't know that I've ever seen that thing abbreviated. Wait, yeah, but it's really small, so you can't see it. Really <laughs> great, great point. Uh, so yeah, man, there's definitely a backlash, right? Like at one point it was, hey, microservice, all the things. And it's like, wait a second, this makes everything really hard, right? So back off that. Let's let's go mono again. And, you know, there's probably a balance somewhere in between. Yeah, in fact, I feel like there was a, a talk given along those times. I'll have to find it now. Um, where like Uber, didn't they have a talk where they, they went completely microservice with everything? This was a few years back. Oh, I don't know. Spotify, weren't they the the one everyone always talks about? Okay, well... Oh, did they go microservice and then backed off of it? Oh, no, they didn't do the back off. They just wrote a big article about kind of splitting their teams up and organizing around the services. Actually, I found it. The title title was, uh, and it is Uber, uh, What I Wish I Had Known Before Scaling Uber to 1,000 Services. Ouch. We'll include a link to that. That would be the, painful uh, for anybody in the show notes. So I definitely think that if your company or your organization or a programmer is telling me about their organization and they mention that they've got microservices, I just naturally kind of assume that that means that there's been someone who's been kind of steering that and thinking about architecture at a high level. And that to me, you know, or as I'm reading this chapter, it made me kind of realize that I have this kind of bias of thinking like, oh, well, if you're microservicing, then you've put a lot of thought into your architecture and you're probably splitting stuff off. Well, you've, you've done a really good job and you've handled uh, the deployment issues and your DevOps and you've really got your stuff together. After reading that chapter, um, he kind of makes a distinction and says, you know, basically services and particularly microservices don't mean that you have any sort of architecture. Right. Which I thought was awesome. It, it was a great call out because you have a bunch of services, they must be decoupled, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's one of the uh, the fallacies of that kind of thinking is that you think of services and microarchitecture or microservices and service-oriented architectures, you, you think of these things as being strongly decoupled and that you can de- develop them and deploy them independently of one another or of their, you know, quote, users. Yep. But then you actually take a step back and you say, are these things truly decoupled? Like if I, if I release my new, if I release an update to my microservice, does it have any impact downstream? Like I added a new field to mine or something like that. All of a sudden you start realizing these things are way more coupled than what you thought they were because now you can't independently deploy this thing because it's going to break everything downstream of it, right? Like all these other services that were depending on that thing, it now has a different set of data types that are coming in and it's like, well, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, the only thing I can think of is if you have like a, if you're a truly large service 
you know, if you're a provider of some service and it's truly large, like massively at scale, like a Google or a Facebook or something like that, then, and you might have versions of your service running concurrently, then I could see the argument where it's like, oh no, I can have multiple versions of my service running and everything. And, and it's not gonna be a problem, but you know, for the average company, because okay, going back even to the stack overflow survey, right? Like the largest, um, when they talked about the size of the companies, right? Like most people were in companies larger, less than a hundred people, right? That, that was the largest, uh, category, you know, that the respondents picked, uh, highest percentage. So, you know, most of us aren't working in a, in an organization where we're supporting thousands upon thousands upon thousands of users where we might be doing that. So if you're realistically, are you going to have multiple versions of your service in use? Maybe, right. maybe it, not so much. So then you yeah. get into what you're saying. We're like, Hey, I, I, added a new field or, you know, we needed to deprecate the use of a field. Right. Yeah. I think that the microservices are definitely a solution to certain problems, but it's not the default answer for organization by, by any means. So yeah, I think you need to justify that decision before you make it. And we actually had some really good advice uh, from uncle Bob in an earlier chapter where he said, don't start out with microservices. Start you start out and build your stuff as if they've got you know nice boundaries and and services and uh, you know manage your dependencies and work towards an interface so that you can split things off if you need to. So you know don't shut that door, but you don't have to dive into it immediately. And actually, uh, I got to start a really great uh, really great talk from uh, Facundo, which I'm going to be uh, checking out here at Orlando CoCamp again. Um, and he's um, a developer here in Orlando. Who uh, he does some consulting and he's done, done a lot of moving companies um, to um, microservices or moving away from or helping them get them to the cloud, just working with microservices. And had a really um, great talk on uh, some kind of QA around it. And um, he definitely wasn't pushing it. You know, he was, uh, um, he took a very practical approach and really liked it. So I'm hoping to find a, a link and I'll throw that uh, in the show notes if I can find one for that talk. But I thought it was really good. It kind of um, changed my thinking on microservices. And so I think if you can build your app, if you can, I don't want to say monolith, you know, cause that kind of implies things I don't mean here, but if you can build your applications such that they have these nice clean boundaries and layers, then you're leaving yourself open to future expansion, but you're not forcing that upon anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So you basically, he, this is kind of goes back to, uh, I think we had this conversation before where he's like, services are not an architecture. There was a similar conversation from, you know, several chapters back where it was something along those same kind of lines. I can't recall it exactly, but, you know, any services that are separate these application behavior that do nothing more than separate these application behaviors are just expensive function calls. Isn't that beautiful? You're just adding latency for this, the sake of it, but, it, you know, you're not necessarily improving your architecture latency and complexity right because now yeah, these things point. all have to be managed and deployed and did this thing die does it need to fail over to another version of it like there's i mean yeah. when you really start thinking through it and how you have to to keep these things alive and all you know in good in good health man it's it's not a small problem to solve yeah, I think a lot of organizations put off the actual deployment of it until kind of near the end, or they don't really think about it until things are getting ready to launch, like a version two or, or a new project or something. And uh, I definitely think that some of the problems that you encounter with microservices can be kind of solved, or at least you can recognize them early on by getting in a nice CI pipeline going and deploying these things and making sure that it makes sense to deploy them independently. And you're not just 
always having to push all these things up all at once because they're actually totally tightly bound to each other. And you just got a really complicated monolith. Now, he does make the point, though, to call out that just because you might want to break these things up into services, it doesn't mean that necessarily every service has to be architecturally significant and that, you know, it needs to be strongly decoupled or anything like that. Like, you know, sometimes you you could break those things apart into services and that doesn't necessarily make it wrong or bad. Right, right. Just like if you have a function that's dependent on something else, it doesn't, again, he, he drew the, the parallel there. You know, not everything's going to be perfect, and you do have to make trade off make trade offs for you know time versus productivity versus you know whatever else you got to do for maintaining the thing. Yeah, I mean, he calls out like you know e- even if you're breaking the dependency rule here, there there are sometimes there are benefits to this where having that functionality separated out might benefit your particular use. Maybe it's a scale problem. You know, maybe like breaking that one piece out, uh, you can now horizontally scale that one service, right? Which you know, for whatever problem you're trying to solve might help, even though you're still strongly coupled to it, right? Maybe you didn't do it in like the most, you know, quote, ideal way. Yeah. And if you remember that dependency rule, it was that source code dependencies can only point inwards. And it's really important, not only is inwards inwards and not outwards, but it also means not to the side, right? So that means these services shouldn't be calling each other because then they're tightly bound to each other. They need to be going through a a layer of indirection. And and an example to kind of bring this to the real world for what what they just said was when when they don't, the benefits might be horizontal scaling, right? So let's say that you have just, for instance, a database behind the scenes that can take, you know, thousands of transactions per second. That's not a problem. But let's say that you have a web server that sort of maxes out at a thousand transactions per second, but you need more of these things coming in, right? It might make sense to break that service across multiple boxes that could then take in, you know, multiple thousands of those requests, right? So that's a case to where, you know, I, I mean, you could make up all kinds of things, but like credit card processing, right? You don't want to be bottlenecked by a particular server if you have to handle a high amount of transactions. So it might make sense to break apart that one service from your application so they can take in as many of those things as possible, right? And then maybe queue it up and add it to the database or something. So that's sort of an example of when that might matter, even though you don't care about drawing these specific boundaries, you just need something that will scale, right? Yep. And uh, I really like um, the next section here talking about the benefits of services. And there are plenty of benefits of services, but decoupling is not one of them. It's and just, I think that's, weird. that's one that we kind of like instantly go to. But th- there are others, you know, like being able to independently scale or deploy or whatever. But if these services are calling each other, then they're absolutely coupled, just like your code can be coupled. It is funny because, like you said, when you hear microservices or service-oriented architectures, you just automatically assume, oh, well, they, you know, they architected this thing to be just, you know, amazing and all separate and independently runnable. And that's not the case, typically. Yeah, yeah honestly, I almost think like I meet somebody at a meetup. They're like, oh, we, yeah, we do, uh, use mar- microservices. I'm like, oh, my gosh, do you work at Google? <laughs> right. That, or Amazon, that- AWS. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me let me ask you guys this. When you think of uh, using microservices, what is your like thinking behind it? Like why why you would want that? Why that was needed? I'm curious if your go to answer is the same as mine. Mine or thought. Go ahead, Joe. What's yours? For me, it's ind- being able to independently release and independently scale. 
but primarily just the ability to release one part without having to release the others. So if you've got these things tightly bound, then to me, you've lost the primary benefit, at least from my understanding. So mine would be reliability. Mine's so I know most people would think that I would think scale, um, but mine is more along the lines of you have two of these things standing up. So if one fails, it can you can easily swap over to the other one. Like I would think that reliability would be the primary benefit and scale would probably so be next. So scale, reliability, and, and Joe's was what again? Independent deployability. Oh. Independent deployability. Yeah, oh. or being able to work at things in kind of parallel and like being able to release things and, you know, like updating the version mm-hmm. number, but not necessarily affecting any existing behavior. And you're basically treating your services like third parties. Right. That, yours? that is not like neither of you were thinking. It's interesting how we all have the three of us each had a different takeaway. Um, mine is just that if I think that there's a need for microservices because you have some idea that you might want to reuse that by other applications, mm. right? So you're thinking of like an external API. I'm thinking like of that. it as like it's part of an external API. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I was just curious, you know, a little, little side tangent topic there. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the <laughs> list here and like all our stuff is in there in the, the top, whatever. This this article has like 30 different pros for it though. So I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. But, but yeah, we hit the high points. Yeah, and we talked about just a minute ago, like they are tightly bound because of the data they share, right? If you typically, you don't have just some central app that calls out to a service and then it gets something back and calls out to another service. Typically, it's almost like a waterfall effect, right? Like you call service A and then it's going to call service B and then it's going to call service C. And that's how you end up, that's how they all become tightly bound because they are all aware of each other to some certain degree and the data inputs and outputs <laughs> that they that they have to publish. So an example might be, and I'm thinking off the top of my head, so maybe this would be a messed up example. But if you wanted to do some kind of an authentication, right, then maybe your first iteration, you're like, you know what, I only need you to pass in a username and a password and I'll, I will verify from there. But then on a subsequent one, you might think, you know what, um, we've changed our the way we handle our encryption, and so we don't want the salt necessarily with right next to the encrypted version. So you're going to pass me in your salt as well. Uh, that's probably a really messed up. Like anybody knows encryption is probably like, what? You're yeah, you don't pass your salt around, but, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, the th- point is, is like you would pass in you know, now suddenly you need to pass in a third thing. You're like, hey, we, we have to deprecate the use of that other one because we've changed the way we're handling, you know, the encryption or something like that. What if like you that, went right? two-factor, right? You have another uh, piece of okay, information. Okay, two-factor. I like that one better. Multi-factor. So, so the, you have to pass in the um, multi-factor authentication code as part of the authentication at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because you've changed that strategy, now any applications that were using the old authentication service now have to know to you, you know, they have to be updated at the same time and released at the same time as this new authentication service. So the deployability and the developability are both impacted by that service. Yeah, you can't just release that thing. It- assuming that you don't just create a V2 of it, right? Or something like that. But you can't just say, all right, well, I'm updating the authentication service because that will now bust everything else. Well, you're saying the V2, though, that means that now assumes that you have concurrently two versions of the service running. Right. That's what I'm saying. Let's not assume that. And 
Yeah. And, and maybe that, that might not be an option for your particular organization, right. right? Like you might not have the option of running two versions of the service because maybe in the background, there might be like schema changes that are forced on the first version of the service. That's like, I can't, I can't allow this version anymore. Right, maybe, that database doesn't exist that way or whatever. Maybe the way you were storing the, maybe the way you were storing the passwords, uh, for example, maybe you didn't have them encrypted good enough, Right. And so you, you've had to like force, uh, maybe because of some like government regulation, like a HIPAA regulation or something like that. Like you have to absolutely, you know, do away with the old way that you were doing the password. So you've like gone and deleted from that and, you know, you force all your users to change their password. They have to go through the new version of the service. So it's not an option to run the new, yep. both. And I do like the having the ability with microservices to be able to spin those up, those two different versions at other times. I definitely think it's a benefit to be able to do that. And then it buys you flexibility on like how to upgrade stuff. But yeah, it may not be an option, which, and that's another point. Like if you've only got three servers or one server, you know, microservicing, it's just another, you know, it's, it's a premature optimization. Yep. And uh, we touched on some of these other things, but one of the things that they say here is service interfaces are not any more formal, rigorous, or defined than functions. And that's interesting, right? Like when you think about that, still, if it changes, everything else has to change, right? Yeah. And I've definitely been on the receiving end and the end also the giving end of making, you know, making changes to services. Oh, I forgot to tell you. You know, I say <laughs> right. that's not a string anymore. Oops. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely been on the receiving end of some bad documentation related to services oh, too. Oh man, yeah. So I would have much rather have had a function that I could go reading rather than bad documentation that leads me down the wrong road. Right. Um, they start talking about here the the independent what what Joe's thought of a service was was the independent development and deployment, and they say that it's been proven that large enterprise systems can exist in the form of a monolith. Services based or component based doesn't really matter. It can all be one, right? As a matter of fact, there was a, I want to say it might have been a software engineering daily or, or software engineering radio podcast episode a while back where they had on the, the, the guy who created, uh, Basecamp, I think is the name of it. It's a, it's a Ruby on Rails thing. And David Hansel Hireman. And, and he was like, yeah, man, ours runs as a monolith and we have, you know, I forget how many users. It's ridiculous. I remember and, you talking about this. Yeah, it, it was amazing. Like the dude's like, look, man, we have a monolith. And he's like, hardware is cheap. Add more of it, right? It, trying to scale this thing out in software is going to be a super expensive engineering problem. And he's like, and ours runs fine, right? Like we've, we've never really had a problem. So it is interesting. It's not saying that everybody should go monolith, but it, it does make you at least step back and say, do we need this? Need is a very important word. Yeah, I mean, it, I have been in some places where microservices were employed, and it does kind of make you question, is this a micro-optimization that we're making before we know that we need it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we said architecture is all about deferring those sort of implementation details, and this is definitely an implementation detail. So why start there? Yeah. Okay, and I did find the link. I'll share this in the in the uh, show notes. It was Software Engineering Radio, episode 261, and his name is David Heinemeyer. And yeah, he Hanson. talks yeah. And, and he talks about the state of Rails monolith monoliths and all that stuff. So it, it was a really interesting episode. He's a great person to to follow on Twitter too. He uh is not afraid of saying controversial things. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so just to round this one out, he um, 
Uncle Bob says that, you know, because these services are tightly bound to the data that they ingest or output, they are still tightly coupled to their dependencies and their deployments must still be coordinated with those external systems. Yep. Oh, now here's a, here's a downside that wasn't mentioned though, is that, uh, you know, if it was just a function, you have compile time checking, you know, error, compile time errors versus runtime errors. And we've talked about the benefits of, you know, prefer compile time error over runtime error. And they're a whole lot easier to handle because right. you know about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's wrong with your kitty? Tell me about your kitty problem. What you got, Joe? All right. So I don't know if you guys remember way back, you know, a couple months ago, we talked about a, t- a taxi service as uh, an example of an application. And uh, you've got a user who could basically say, hey, I need a taxi. And your app would be in charge of dealing with the various companies and making sure that your uh, qualifications as a, a writer are met, like, you know, maybe certain price or a certain quality of cab or some such. And uh, it would go out, find the cab and, and get it to you. And we had like a little sample app that we worked on. Well, in the meantime, in those last couple of months, marketing came back to those, those programmers and said, hey, you know what? In addition to all that other stuff, we also want to start delivering kitties around the city. And uh, because of that, we need to be aware of other people's allergies, particularly the drivers. Also, anyone, any cab that has delivered a kitty needs to take a couple days off before letting one ride in it just in case. And so they basically, uh, they do what PM does, right? They, um, they took things in a direction that would have been difficult to predict ahead of time. And what did that do to our functional decomposition? Somebody else. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that was the thing is all of a sudden you had this simple, you know, pick up somebody and deliver them from one place to another as a taxi service. And now you have all these additional rules like, you know, can the cat go with this person? can the cat be taken to this location, all this kind of stuff. If all that was in some sort of microservice architecture, how much of that stuff would have to change? Probably all of it, right? Like every bit of it. So that architecture that you used, quote unquote, at the time that you created that thing originally, it doesn't support these new use cases. And so you got to redo it all anyways. Right. This is a cross-cutting concern of, uh, you know, fundamentally to how this service is going to work. What was once just a taxi service is now a also a kitten delivery service, right? That That's a cross-cutting concern across the, you know, that impacts the entire application. So everything is going to be affected. And you know, the funny part is, I think the last time we mentioned this, this uh, we're going to call it a vocabulary term, which by the way, Joe Zach, didn't you create a GitHub vocabulary thing for coding blocks? Like, we need to start updating this thing. Yeah, Joe, of course, Joe had a great idea um, and said, uh, basically, hey, why don't you uh, put up some of the vocab? Yeah, he really does. (laughs) Joe, you're awesome. And uh, anyway, I made a little GitHub page. It's really scant right now, but hey, uh, you could totally fork it and add stuff to it. So I'm going to add, take a little note here to add cross-cutting concerns. Because I always think of like logging or something else. It was interesting to see like a, a functional requirement considered cross cross-cutting because it really does have effects on UI. I mean, every single layer of the diagram, we won't go over the diagram, but every single component was like, oh, yep, that needs to change because this and that needs to change because of that. Yeah, so cross-cutting concerns for anybody that's not aware. That's basically something that 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 touches like all different parts of your application, right? It could be, we, it's easy to say logging because typically you want to log things if there's errors or, or warnings or whatever. So that's an easy one that you kind of want everywhere. 
Um, a lot of times there's retries and that kind of stuff. So yeah, cross-cutting concerns is a good vocabulary for anybody who's not heard of it. And so, functional decompositions. Yep. And so he says that, you know, you know, care needs to be taken so that these new features don't cut across all of your services. Yeah. So how the heck do you do that? <laughs> and I feel like that that's kind of been what the whole book has been about. It's like, well, how do you do that? What you do is you d- create a bunch of interfaces to interact between these different parts of our application. And then we can sideload this jar or DLL or library or service, or whatever. And then we can inject this logic into various other places by basically configuring our current application or current services to go through that and to incorporate the pieces as needed. So it's writing our own logic for this specific problem and then kind of configuring it into the flow and uh, utilizing tools like dependency injection and configuration management to make it all work. And by the way, this is something that is going, like we're not even going to try and describe how he broke it down and changed it in the book because like he's got pages of diagrams to where he's re-architecting, reconfiguring these boundaries and all that kind of stuff. So like this is literally one of those things that if you want to be able to follow along with this one, you'll need the book. So again, if you want your chance to win it, you know, leave a comment here, but this this is where having the book can add some value to to some of these conversations. And before reading this, I was like, as soon as I heard the problem, I was like, well, you, you know, yeah, you have to change everything. And then kind of reading the explanation of how they kind of broke it about and how they kind of made it happen. It's like, oh, well, crap, that's pretty good. But I still kind of, I'm like, my mind is bog- boggling. Because if say, you know, the next day, like, hey, we're now we're a parrot delivery service too. I, I think like, okay, now we're going to need to sideload the parrot stuff. And then we're going to have to configure this stuff and kind of pile it on top of the kit. Like, how do you do that without having the, the bird stuff aware of the kitty stuff aware of the driver, you know, it's st- my mind is still kind of melting over that. Um, but I'm going to take his word for it. And that's not an easy problem. Right. And that's one of those things. Like I, I think he said, it might've been our last episode where he was talking about, don't try and guess everything up front. Right. Like yeah. if something like this comes along, yes, take a step back and look at all of it because architecture is a, an iterative approach. So don't try and figure out all this stuff to make it the most flexible system on the planet when you started out delivering people, right? When this next requirement comes up that kind of blows up your whole world, at that point, say, all right, well, where can I draw these boundaries? Where where are the things that are in common? Where are the things that aren't? And then go from there. So like, you, you know, your next step, you'd probably do the same thing. You back up, you, you try and draw it out like on a sheet of paper of all things and say, hey, where can I draw these lines? Well, I think it was also mentioned too in like the last episode that those pain points, those 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 points of friction, uh, are going to be the ones that you're going to reevaluate, right? You know, because um, you're not going to like take a look at it, you know, all up front. You're not going to be able to like break it apart into all of its individual granules. You'll you'll do a little here, a little there, and you right. know, each time you you iterate on it again, it's going to be on like what's the next pain point. And I will say, like, going to a real-life use case of this thing, if you find yourself start writing a bunch of if-else statements, we've used this in in, in payment processing before because it's a pain that we've all felt. If you start seeing yourself doing if PayPal, then this, if credit card, if this, if, you know, other payment instrument, then this, then you really, really need to take a step back and think about how do I abstract this better? Yeah, same with switch statements, same kind of thing. Yep, switch, yeah. if else, any of that kind of stuff where you start really 
complicating your code and really introducing a lot of potential uh, maintenance problems and, and just bugs because you have all these if-else statements, that's when you need to think about how do I break this down to where it's just something that can be plugged in, right? If you can, if you can train your mind to think of how can I plug this in and it work, then, then you've taken a step in the right direction. Well, here's something that some might consider controversial. If I remember clean code correctly, Uncle Bob said that your switch statements should only be used in factories. Yes, he did. That's the only time you're allowed to use a switch statement. Yep. So getting back onto the topic here about the cross-cutting concerns, he says that these architectural boundaries uh, don't run between the services, but rather through them. So this is kind of, you know, at first, like that, that statement, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what does that mean? But this is kind of building on what Joe was talking about with, you know, using solid principles and interfaces between these things to, um, you know, as to like, well, how do you fix this problem, right? And that's what he's trying to get at here is that, you know, the, these interfaces are what's going to run through the different, um, you know, from the, the service and the user of the service. Yep. And we got the uh, dependency rule coming up again which is saying that the dependencies need to point inward to uh, higher or lower layers, depending <laughs> on the diagram you're looking at. Dang it, it. it. The easiest way to remember it is your application's business logic is the innermost circle, right? So that's everything inward. should be pointing towards that. The top of the ziggurat or the cone. Yes. <laughs> awesome diagram. Yes. See, the architecture is defined by the boundaries within the system and the dependencies that cross those boundaries. Yeah, it's not defined by the physical uh, mechanisms of how the code communicates and runs. That's, that's so important. Don't think about the underlying storage. Don't think about the communication channels. Don't think about that stuff. It's your, literally how they interact. Yeah. Your architecture, here's another one too. Like if you were to go to like a conference uh, you know, and you were to ask somebody like, hey, what's your architecture? You know, you might often hear people refer to the tech stack. Yeah, definitely. Not the architecture. Definitely. It, I definitely feel like microservices was a common answer to for the organizations that are using microservices. Like, hey, what's your architecture? Like, microservices, everything. Right. But how and do you... Next uh, is the language. Okay, so so backing up then, <laughs> if if somebody asks you about the architecture of your system... What do you say? Because that's typically your go-to. It's a microservices or I have three tiers or whatever. Like everything we've talked about in this book over the past, what, three months, it is not, it's not got anything to do with the technical nitty gritty hardware. None of that. It's literally drawing lines between, between functional components. I keep in my wallet a folded up diagram of, <laughs> of all the functionality and objects within uh, you know, and, and so I can physically show like, here are the lines between my application. This is what my architecture looks like. These little bubbles over here, they communicate through here. So, so when somebody asks you, you like, you, hold, hold, please. Right. You, you pull that wallet out, you unfold that thing, you, you uncrinkle it, lay it yes. on, the, on the floor and you're like, it Bam. takes me a little bit. It, <laughs> takes, it takes me a minute. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can see how like a, a database focus, focus person might generate a schema diagram when asked about the architecture. Right. I, I think what like what he's getting at is like the answer should be like in the taxi kitty example, it should be, well, um, we've got a user interface that takes input from a user and it goes out to a taxi dispatcher. And it, we've got a couple of rules there and it goes out and it figures out based on those rules, which uh, taxi dispatch or taxi services are eligible to send a car. We go ahead and get that scheduled for the user who pays us somehow. 
And we have and abstractions here and, you know, just, it's definitely more of a technical software talk than it is a, oh, we have three tiers. Right? Well, or, it's pretty interesting. I, I almost just described the business, not the, right. you know, the app, actual application. And it's because those things have gotten to be like really close. And, and if we go way back, the whole purpose of software is to enable the business to automate and and do things. Make money. A, yeah, in a computing mm-hmm. way. It's about the business. The only value you really have is what you're adding to the business through your application. So then your short answer is, if somebody asks you what the architecture is uh, at your job, then you should either describe your business or say something short like, it, our arch- architecture is designed to support the business. Or after reading this book, you just say, oh, we have a clean architecture. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. uh, or don't lie. <laughs> just okay. Well, I mean, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm assuming I'm ass- our <laughs> listeners probably have clean architecture. And uh, that's what I'm do. assuming. Yes, you know, they that's wouldn't. why they're all listening right now. Yeah, I mean, you want to sound good, so don't tell them the truth. <laughs> that's right. Um, but, uh, you know, like an e-commerce site, you might say something like, well, we've got a website front end where users can place orders, uh, through a queue that gets picked up and processed by processing and uh, then accounting does this. And I mean, you really are uh, describing the business. And just like we said, when we first started out on this journey with this book, we want the scope to to match the structure. And what we meant by that was the actual business need and what the code looks should be like a reflection. And the closer that reflection is to being accurate to like both sides, you know, match like looking in a mirror, then the less strife there's going to be between the two and the easier it's going to be to change things. Because remember, that was the big problem. Business said we want a checkbox that a checkbox that, you know, undoes your entire world. Well, like, well, we can't do that because that's actually a really big change for us. Because even though it seems like something little for you, uh, the way we've written these rules doesn't line up with the way you think about these rules. And that's what we're trying to fix with clean architecture. Hey, before we go into the resources, there was a really good, and I want to find who did it. There was a really good comment from, oh man, it was an episode discussion on this podcast and it was from, I cannot find it, doggone it. Man, I hate that. At any rate, it was brought up, we we had mentioned in the last episode this whole thing about, um, what was it? Partial decoupling or partial, partial boundaries, partial boundaries. So th- what we said is, you know, in a fully uh, implemented boundary, you might have your interfaces in a separate project, separate jar, separate, whatever, right. Or, or assembly that both sides that are going to use that thing will implement. Right. And the discussion was, well, if you go the partial boundary route, then you might skip breaking that thing out into its own assembly or or jar or whatever. And then that way you don't have as many things to manage when you're deploying. Right. So you might bundle it in with a particular layer, we'll say, or a particular component, I think is how it was put. And man, it it drives me crazy that I can't find them because it won't scroll back far enough right now. But the the thing that was said was, well, why not just put it in the application layer? Because that's your most central, so things can use it. And and I wanted to reply to that because it's a really good statement. If you don't have that many layers outside of that, then maybe that's fine, right? Maybe, maybe you make things depend on that interface in there. The only problem I see with that is, and, and I tried to reply in the thing and I in and it's hard to describe this stuff just, you know, writing back about thoughts, right? 
But what I was saying is, if that application tier doesn't actually implement that interface, then it doesn't make sense to put it there. You know what I'm saying? So, so for instance, if you put the interface in there because you want everything to be looking in, and basically anything can look in there and say, implement the interfaces in this particular application component. Well, if that application component isn't using that interface in any way, shape, or form, then you're probably putting it in the wrong place because now it's just sort of a dumping ground. There's no cohesion there. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that says this application tier belongs to this interface. So I want to redefine how you described partial versus fully. Okay. Um, because I think it might help clear this up a little bit. Okay. Is that from what I recall, and you tell me if, if I could be way off base, but a fully implemented boundary was where everything was in its own separate component, separate, de separately deployed component, right? A partially one is you, it's all deployed together, but maybe in the source code, it's broken out into separate projects so that later it could be broken out into independent. Right, right. So what you're describing is like, you might still have that other project for that interface, right? And other projects that want it might reference that interface either for uh, implementing a version of that interface or just, hey, I want some ver I want uh, a instance of this interface, you know, but um, it's not, it, it would still be, in its own thing and not in some other project that has nothing to do with it. Right. And that's really the key, right? So whatever abstraction, and we say interface because it's easy to just, you know, think about things that, that polymorph to that. It, it could be an abstract class, whatever. But what I'm saying is that thing should at least be where it's being used, right? Or where, where it's being implemented because it doesn't make sense just to say, hey, put everything in the application tier just because you know everything's going to be pointing in that way, right? If there's no implementation at that level of that particular interface or that, that abstract class or whatever it is, then that's probably not the right place to put it. Bring it out to where it is being used by whatever's on both sides of it, you know? So I, I, I Joe, I see you, you sort of looking, does that make sense? Yeah, I was just thinking like by putting it in the core, then you're kind of applying that this is kind of like a core feature, a core part of the system. But if it's, you know, you've got the interface there, but the functionality is really not, it's really in one of these lower layers and you're kind of lying to your users or you're right. misleading and that that's this what isn't I was getting a core at. part of your core logic. Yeah, and that's, and again, I mean, it, it, it's easy to talk about these things in, in hypotheticals, but you know, you'd probably see it. Like if you ever saw, you know, some sort of class that's, that's buried in your application and nothing's really using it there, then, then you probably need to figure out where that thing should actually live because you don't want to just say, Hey, we'll see innermost here, put everything here because I know everything can use it. Right. That just doesn't make sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I'm on board. All right. So. With that, um, if you haven't already left us a review, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it if you would. puts a huge smile on our face. Uh, you can head to www.codingblocks.net slash review, and you can find some helpful links there to some of the main uh, aggregators. But uh, I think we've said it before, like I don't care how many reviews we have. Every new one that I read is a smile. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I enjoy reading every one of them. So, um, you know, don't think that, uh, you know, you're too late to leave yours. It'll, it'll still mean just as much to us as the first one 
Definitely. Hey, and by the way, I want to give credit where credit was due. It was not in the episode discussion channel. It was in the podcast chat and it was Henry Hagen who left that message. It was Ristelhoff and I, great, great point. So thanks for, for sharing that, those thoughts in there. Which is also a great segue into like, if you haven't wait, joined wait, the Slack. Wait, 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 oh, what, what were you going to say? I had another segue. All right. But <laughs> I, I was going to say, don't forget that we're sending out free stickers if you send a review. So you don't need to go back and screenshot anything. Like we're, we're, we're doing honor system here. But if you have left a review in the past, uh, we, and, and we really appreciate it. We want to send you, uh, stickers. So go ahead and, uh, shoot us a, a message or an email or something and we'll hook you up. Even if you're, uh, especially if you're international. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you haven't already, um, joined the Slack community, you really should. Um, so you can hit us up there at, uh, codingblocks.net slash Slack. If, if you haven't already joined. I was actually telling Arlene earlier today that believe it or not, Slack is actually the best way to contact me <laughs> because I get the little notification number like email, definitely not. Twitter, like not, eh, you know, not so much like we all kind of check it sometimes so that those notifications kind of get lost. But uh, Slack, I will eventually see it. And I'm still not very good at that, though. <laughs> but you do get a little ding on your phone, on your computer, all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, email I mean, email works, too. So whatever you're com- comfortable with, you know, we're there. Like, go ahead and contact us about those stickers. We'll hook you up. Um, it's just, uh, I know, like, email, too, gets a lot of spam and notifications and stuff. So Slack is preferred, but we'll hook it up. Definitely. All right. So... Uh, Let's get into my favorite portion of the episode. Survey says <laughs> outlaw family step on up. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I would try to sing the music right now, but it would come out horribly wrong. Okay. There yes. I did it for you. With the creepy, we haven't sang in a while. So no, we I'm have glad you did that. With the creepy host, although now it's Steve Harvey. So that's not so much creepy as just hilarious. Yeah. Right. He's kind of mean, isn't he? Man, don't be the person. Have you seen some of the people on there though? Yeah, true. <laughs> mommy. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. That was different than mommy. Um, okay. So, I mentioned earlier that there was a, uh, you know, some similarity between our recent survey and some other sites, recent survey. And last episode we asked when you're not coding for work or school in your free time, do you eat, sleep, code, repeat coding is all that matters or you got to be well-rounded, get outside, ride a bike, climb a mountain, hike a trail. Or Netflix, gotta binge watch everything. Or Rocket League. Or insert favorite video game title here. I feel like that should have been Call of Duty, seeing as how that's what we used to talk about all the time. Used to be, man. Times have changed, haven't they? No, man. I love some Call of Duty now. Really? Man, on Xbox One. I used to love it, man. I I don't even know what happened. Like, somehow it just... I, it was literally like a light switch, like years of Call of Duty, and just finally I was like, oh, I'm done. Well, that was me last year. Last year I didn't play it, and then this year I just I had the itch, and I was like, I I, I need this in my life. <laughs> so, I don't know. Overwatch I did, came out, and I was like, oh, this is different and new, and also good. Like, what else is out there? Yep. I did see that um, there 
they already have announced the pre-order for Black Ops 4, and I did get a little excited when I saw that. I can't lie. I was like, oh, yes. So I don't know, man. All right. Sorry for derailing us. All, All right, right. Back to the so, survey. Um, let's go Joe first. Which one do you think is the most popular? Coding is uh, all that matters. Get outside, Netflix, or Rocket League? This is tough. Um, if it was, it was a multi-select, it would definitely be Netflix because like everybody has Netflix, right? I would say, oh, you know, a, a large percentage of people. And uh, oh, geez, this is tough. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Netflix with uh, thirty-seven percent. Wow, you went high. Nice. I, I think, did. I think I'm going low on this one. I'm going to go. Man, this one is hard because honestly, I could see every one of these being like twenty-five percent of uh-huh. the, of the vote. Uh-huh. I'm going to go Rocket League because I think we got some gamers. Yeah. I want to say Rocket League. And we're not talking about the percentage of time they do doing this. We're Correct. just talking about the percentage of people. So. You have free time. <laughs> yes. And this is your go-to way to spend that free time. I'm going to give this 20%. 20% Rocket yeah. League. Okay, well done. Yeah. All right. 20% Rocket League and 37% Netflix and survey says you're both wrong oh man don't tell me people are lying they say they get outside i don't believe it yep get outside (laughs) is the number one answer with 43 percent of the vote man that's awesome good for you that's i would have never guessed that high and i think that's awesome that's what i'd hoped everybody would say yep now you you had number two alan okay rocket league or or any kind of gaming was definitely uh you know 20 percent. that was number two how, followed by, how far was it though? Was it truly twenty? Uh, no, it was like almost twenty-one. Yeah. Oh, I was really close. How yeah. about that? All right. Yeah. Had that been the most popular answer, you would have definitely won by prices right rules. Nice. <laughs> um, and then yeah, Netflix was actually last. Wow. Last place. Yeah. I would have said Rocket League, but my subs keep getting destroyed in Subnautica. <laughs> so I got to get back to it. Glanks uh, hooked me up. He threw out a little time capsule, so I got to go find it. But yeah, I'm always putting around with something. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of interesting comparing our, our results with the Stack Overflow results because they they worded theirs as like, well, how often do you exercise, right? They didn't they didn't give it a choice of like, hey, do you exercise or do you just Netflix or Rocket League or, right. you know, because basically like Eat, Sleep, Code, Repeat, Netflix and Rocket League, for example, could all be done in front of your computer. Yep. In fact, you could do those maybe even somewhat <laughs> concurrently. I don't know about all three of them. Definitely. There's definitely two of them. You could definitely do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so theirs was just how often do you exercise period? And the, the choices were, uh, I don't typically exercise one to two times a week, three to four times a week or daily or almost daily care to take a stab at what you think those were two to three, two to three. It, wait, no, that wasn't a choice. It was one to two or three to four. Mm, one to two. One to two is the number one. Yeah. Care to put a percent on it? 27. 27. Joe? One to two, uh, 60%. 60% <laughs> one to two. No way. Now, I don't typically exercise was 37.4%. Ouch. Percent. One to two was the number two choice at 29. Man, I'm really close. Yeah. Yeah, so I will say for me, like this, these answers here, it's cyclic. Like I'll literally find myself yeah. for weeks at a time. I, all I do is code all day. Right. Yeah. And then I'll be like, I got to get out and I got to get some exercise. I need some physical exertion. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, and then there's times where I need some call of duty in my life. Right. It's just, 
Yeah. Yeah. I would so, say that exercise is probably a little extra hot this time of year. Yeah. All right. We're still coming off that January 1st. Yeah. yeah so if you take a look at like, you know, we had uh 43% were saying they get outside when they have their free time. If you take all of the ones from Stack Overflow, all the all of the exercise ones and combine them in to one choice of like, you know, do you exercise or not, then it was like 60% of hmm. the respondents exercise at least weekly. Interesting. Right. That's cool. I mean, it's good to hear because it's, I mean, honestly, in this profession, if you don't get some phys- physical exercise in your life, you will eventually just get to a point where you feel bleh. And, and I mean, you know. sitting is the news, is the smoking That's of our generation, yep. right? Yep. So, you know, you know if, I finally had my first full standing day. Oh, because nice. I had meetings all day. <laughs> so that wasn't so nice. But it was nice that I sit all day and it wasn't uncomfortable. So when I first started standing, even after like two hours, I remember like, oh my gosh, I'm standing two hours a day. My feet hurt. Yeah. And so now like I can do a whole day and it's no big deal. Awesome. Man, I, I got to get me a, a standing desk. They're amazing. How often do you use yours? Not as much as I should. Probably a few times a month. I mean, oh, I, really? I'm not good about it. Yeah. Only a few times a month? Yeah, I'm not. I, I should be. The thing is, I, I'll get coding and I'll just forget that I even have it. Right. Oh, right. And, and it's just. I could see that. Yeah. So. Uh, the meeting thing's great because I don't like typing a lot while I'm standing. But in the meeting, like, no problem standing. I don't have to be like dance and stuff to kind of keep awake. Yeah. It's good. Nobody even knows I'm dancing right now. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this episode we're going to ask we we while we watch Joe dance and raise the roof. That's right. We uh <laughs> Oh man. We got to have a sprinkler next. If you're right? not watching this also on video, you should cuz the dance moves that I am seeing right now are just amazing and you owe it to yourself to check it out. I've seen like Joe Egyptian. sprout into a, a flower or something before. <laughs> head, head to codingblocks.net slash YouTube uh, to get to our YouTube channel. Yep. And uh, you'll, you'll be able to find this in all of its video glory. Yeah. I do um, a lot of dancing <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> so uh, we talked about licenses before earlier, and I forget the exact context of it. Um, uh, something, one of the things that you brought up earlier, I think in the beginning of the show, Alan, but so this episode, we're going to ask, do you pay attention to third party licenses? And your answer, your choices are <laughs> your answers. I was going to answer it for you, <laughs> but instead I digress and I'll just give you your choices. Your first, an- your first choice is yes, because my company forces me to, or yes, because it's a good habit or no, wait, you actually read those things? Or lastly, no, wait, am I supposed to? Yeah, this will this will be interesting. Uh, I I bet there will be things in here that will be scary. Yeah, I think it, it depends a lot on like where you work like work, like what kind of software. Yeah. Oh, we'll see. A quick question for all of you trailblazing freelancers. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? Our friends at FreshBooks, who make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers, are the architects behind this question, and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. 
If that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. Oh, and if you're doing the math, 192 hours works out to two working days per month. When tax time does roll around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. If you are a freelancer listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now would be a good time to try it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding, that's C-O-D-I-N-G, and enter coding space blocks in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, and check this out. One of our buddies just signed up for it and they even have little interesting tools to start the clock when you start working hmm. and stop the clock. So there's there's a ton of other little features to make it really nice for you as right. you're keeping up with your expenses. Very nice. All right. So coming back in here, the next thing that we're going to talk about are test boundaries. And yes, they are a part of your architecture. That's the tests, right? The tests are a part of your architecture. The tests are, yes. They, they should not be an afterthought, basically, right? It, we talked about it on clean code and other things. They need to be there. And here's the interesting thing, right? Like we've talked about all these abstractions and everything. That's not the case with tests. They need to be very detailed and very concrete. They are following the same dependency rule that everything else is, and they're pointing inwards. Yeah, there was yeah, one. Not, oops. Dang it. Sorry. Oh, okay. They were probably going to say the same thing that tests are not immune to all the rules we've been talking about. They're not some like sort of side thing where you get to do whatever you want. It's really important to write those well or else they end up being fragile and discarded. Yeah, except I, w I did want to come back in and explore on that, though. But um, he said one part here that I hadn't really thought about it. Like he said, like, think of your your tests as your outermost circle. Right. And I'd never really thought of them like that. But it makes sense when you when you do. And if I remember right, when they fall into the zone of uh, uselessness or something, it's something ridiculous. It might not have been uselessness, but basically... Zone of pain, maybe? Zone of pain. They are very concrete and very not abstract, and that's what it was, zone of pain. So, yeah, I mean, but that's the way they're supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be there to test what you have, not be yeah, used by... Yeah, they're consumers by, of your code. Right, not be used by anything else. Right, and I'll remember that dependency rule means that dependencies go inward. So the test still shouldn't be dependent on, say, a database. So, you know, of course, if you do an integration test or something, then you're you're going to end up testing some sort of database or some sort of mock of one. But yeah, just the idea that tests are uh, part of that boundary and they're part of that layer that are outside and past all of that because they can kind of reach in. And um, that made me kind of think about a, a discussion that we had way way back, maybe like episode nine, way in the beginning, we were talking about unit testing when we talked about testing internal classes and methods or, or package or private or basically, you know, some sort of non-public entity with unit tests. And we both said, I think Outlaw and I both said, I don't remember where you were at, Alan, but we both liked that idea. And we kind of struggled with the notion that maybe you shouldn't test, you know, anything but the public layer. I was wondering, uh, like, how you thought about that now, Outlaw, that we've kind of, like, read this chapter. Well, I mean, this chapter was, like, you might think that, okay, you might think that hearing us talk about test boundaries, you're like, oh God, not this again. I've seen so many take talks on unit unit testing and TDD and BDD, blah, blah, blah. You're like, okay, I'm done. I don't need this. 
But this chapter was actually like seriously eye-opening. It made me like reconsider everything that I've ever done about uh, unit testing was probably wrong. And it actually like flies in the face of a lot of the like how you should structure your unit test kind of topics and conversations that are out there. Um, so, you know, I would say that uncle Bob would definitely argue that you shouldn't be going after, you know, anything that's not public, that you should only be testing the public layer. Um, and that makes sense. But the reason why I say that it, it was so mind blowing for me was that, you know, you mentioned earlier a moment ago, Alan, about them being in the zone of pain because they are so concrete and fragile, right? Um, he refers to it as like, you need to create a testing, a test API, right? And I think we've talked about this in the content, in some other context before where it was like a test language, right? If I remember right. But he, he basically says like, your, your testing architecture needs to have its own API that's a that's a superset of these interfaces so that you can decouple your tests from the application themselves so that testing you know refactoring the application doesn't mean necessarily mean that the tests themselves have to be rewritten. Yeah, that was a really cool takeaway. And I've never thought of it like that. Like I you know even um I think when we've talked about uh you know unit testing before. And in fact, I think there was a previous episode where I had posted like, Hey, here's how, you know, I like this. Uh, there was this article that Phil hack put out about like how he likes to structure his unit tests. And so that it shows up nice inside of that IDE. And then, uh, Roy, uh, Osharov, I think it's how you pronounce his name that wrote uh, the art of unit testing. He had a particular format on how to structure your unit tests. And even, you know, as far as from the naming perspective, so that, you know, regardless of what test runner you used, you could immediately see what class was being tested, what method was being tested and what use case was being tested. Right. And, you know, I, and in that episode uh, where I, you know, merged those two concepts into one. It was like, Hey, here's how I like to do it. Right. Would totally go against everything that uncle Bob is telling us here because, you know, having those class names and those method names in the unit test names and the unit test method names, he would, he would probably want to slap me with this book if he saw that. Because they call this the fragile test problem. Basically, as those those um, concrete classes change, you could have like depending on how complex your project is, you could have a thousand unit tests fail. Right? And it's like whoa, yeah. It's it's really funny. Like reading this chapter, I felt like I kind of had like Uncle Bob on one shoulder and like Roy Osher over on the other. And uh, you know, as soon as I would start like leaning one way, the other would kind of smack me. And so I, you know, my initial first thoughts coming in were, well, of course, my test files should match, you know, match up like one for one for the the test fi- or the files that are under test, right? And um, same with the assemblies and everything; it should all just line up because I'm testing classes, right? I'm testing these smallest units. And then you know, reading this chapter, I've got uh, you know, it feels like Uncle Bob slapped me on the back of the head saying. Hey, wait, no, this is the outermost consumer. Like, why would you cheat and suddenly start having all these concrete dependencies 
And, uh, you know, like, why would you, why would you do that? And that's totally anti everything. Are you trying to make this stuff really fragile? Like, why would you have it totally this mirror image of everything that's under test so that you, you know, like kind of by definition, every time you change one, you have to go change the other. Like, are you crazy? So every time I would kind of start leaning towards one, I would get smacked together. So I still, I don't, I don't know where I ended up <laughs> still figuring that out. Yeah. Honestly, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I, I still got to try to like sort this out in my mind now because it was a little bit of like a mind blown moment. Like I've had so many years of, you know, v- extremely smart, well-respected people in the developer community. Uh, you know, we named it, we named a couple already that are, you know, saying like, hey, here's some like really good ways to structure your tests and everything and like good patterns. And then this comes along and I'm like, Oh man. And it's How not do just I incorporate that. Right. It's not that it just comes along and you're like, Oh, it makes sense. Right. Like, yeah, that made the sense. Thing. Exactly. as like how Joe put it, you know, like you're, why would you cheat? The, this is the outermost circle. So why would you suddenly decide that it's okay to cheat the system here? Yep. And, and if you, if you go back to what we talked about, I think on the last episode, when we thought we were going to have both of them in one, we talked about the main program the main method right being the thing that that scaffolds it or or puts all the things together right that's basically what your unit test should do right there should be some some things that new up everything and, and inject all your dependencies at the first place and use the abstractions and, and now you're in a spot to where if you want to test it slightly different if you have another pluggable feature guess what you just test that way too and it's funny, just the other day on Twitter, I saw someone talking about how they gave some advice for, for somebody on, on unit testing and they pasted like the, the what they typed to the person in Twitter. And I read it and I was like, oh, this person is going to get a beat down. Like they, they don't know the rules and what you're supposed to say about unit testing because they were advocating <laughs> for outside in unit testing. And I thought maybe they had just come up with this or this was just kind of like a novel idea that they had. And I was like, oh boy, you're, you're going to get it, right? And got the popcorn <laughs> and I hit the replies. And man, reply after reply after reply was like, man, I finally get it. This actually makes so much more sense to me. I'm actually testing this stuff, how I use it. It's not so fragile. It's really great. And I started kind of Googling this whole outside in and saw that there's there's a, a little bit of talk. I don't know if I'm maybe not getting the right terminology or, you know, what it is. So I'm not finding like kind of people recently talking about it. But I do see this term of outside in testing, you know, sprinkled throughout blog posts over like the last five years or so. But now I'm kind of wondering, it's like, well, crap, you know, maybe I need to like reevaluate and look at some of like the newer thinking on unit tests. And, you know, maybe I've been kind of stuck in my ways. I don't, I don't know. It's easy to do. We've talked about it. We did the same thing with databases for years, right? Like it was your source of truth. It was the core. It was what everything depended on only to look back and go, oh, wait a second. That really shouldn't have mattered. Right. Yep. So, uh, and we kind of skipped over it. These should be independently deployable, right? And the most isolated system component, meaning that it, it, it really only relies on everything else. Nothing should be touching that. So you can push it out there and it'll run at any time. And they, and they, they already wanna... are deployed like that. They already are independently deployed. If you think about it, you don't deploy the test version of your code to With a production environment. Right. You know, typically that's a debug version that's just deployed to whatever you're going to run the tests are. Uh, you know, even if that quote deployment is just locally on your own file system, but that's it. Well, let's talk about that real quick. It depends on what language you're talking about, right? Because if you talk about something like C sharp, that'll be in a separate project that you don't deploy, right? 
If you're talking about things like, uh, for instance, in the JavaScript world, it is typically a best practice to have your your test spec in the same folder as the files that it's using. But you'll have something in the bundling or the or the building of your application that will say, "Hey, skip all the spec files or or whatever." So it's it depends on which world you're talking about, right? Like it still doesn't get deployed. Well, that's what I meant by the deployed, even like on your local file system, right? Okay. It would be like. You know, if you're skipping the the spec files right. versus if you're building a separate DLL or jar file. It is interesting because like in the C sharp world, it does kind of frustrate me that you can't put the test next to it. Like you have to put it in another project. And now it's not really clear to see, hey, did I test these things, right? Like it is Are it, there tests for this? Are thing? there tests? Like there might not be. And and that's the one thing I really do like about the at least the the JavaScript uh, ecosystem and how that stuff evolves is like it's nothing to put it right next to it. It's yeah. just you know another another statement in whatever your build uh, setup is to say, hey, skip these things. So yeah, yeah. And I always thought it'd be neat to have the tests in the files too. Like you know, I don't I don't do that. I know that's you know against the rules or whatever. But uh, just imagine the idea of like you know going into your class and you see you know your one or two methods there, and then you scroll down a little bit and then there's like ten tests that kind of show you like what the you know the rules are, what what it means. I bet you could do directive things. It's especially a hassle in like large yeah. projects yeah. where there's a lot of individual um, par- components or projects within the overall solution. You know, how frustrating is like when you would have like two files open, they're, you know, the same file name basically are very similar except for maybe the word test in them. And they're even arranged kind of similarly. And like one's way over here, one's way over there. So you're like, Okay, let me open the next file. Let me go up, down, over, left, turn around three times. Open the other file. Uh, turn turn the other way three times. Go right. Go down. Go up. You know, and then find the same file that's kind of mapped there, and then open that up. And now, you, like every time you open a file, you've got two files opening up with very similar names. You know, it's just annoying. I, f- I felt like he was trying to hunt the wumpus as he was trying to <laughs> open his files. I mean, the the interesting thing with that uh, is is the fact that they get very disorganized unless you are super, yeah. you know, hyper aware of what the file structure is. But then it sucks, right? Like if you move your class from one place to another, you're going to go move your unit test from one location to another. And it's just, it's a mess. But anyways. Yeah, wasn't that a benefit of unit testing? Like isn't it supposed to free me up to refactor more freely, right? And now we're saying like, <laughs> well, actually it's a big pain in the butt if you move anything. So well, you know, refactor, but just don't rename anything. Yeah. But unlike unlike the other parts of your of the code, though, in your application, your tests support development, and that's it. Right. Everything else is about operation, but tests, te- your unit tests are not. They're not. They have nothing to do with operation. They're purely about supporting the development and giving you the the confidence to do any kind of refactoring or to know that this works the way I intended it to work. This next yeah, so now I'm wondering, like, maybe, you know, maybe all this time, like, I thought unit testing was just really hard to do. Maybe I've just been doing it wrong. <laughs> so I'm going to have to do some experimenting. I'm going to have to try um, kind of creating my own test boundary, keeping it as part of the, the architecture, and, and just kind of see how that works on a project and see how I feel about it. Yep. I mean, it doesn't sound like a bad thing. No. If anything, it'll make it easier and better going forward, right? Although it's going to be painful. It's a it's a mind bender, right? But, um, yeah. So he has a statement here where... You know, if you think about what we said so far about, you know, these are the most detailed and concrete. They're the outermost circle. Uh, nothing depends on them. Nothing depends on them. That's a key. And that, you know, 
they support the development. He says all code should be modeled like the tests. Isn't that crazy? You know, layers upon layers. I mean, I, I have to see what this looks like. I've never seen anything like this. So um, <laughs> if there's an open source project or something that's got like a, this kind of test layer, then I'd love to see it. And you're coming up in the next chapter. I think we've got a, a nice example of what layers like this could look like, though not specific to testing. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I want to see a test layer. Yeah, so ultimately this kind of goes back to like a TDD conversation where you know the solution to this test boundary is to design for testability from the start, right? Which is very TDD in, in thought, right? Like if you can't write a test for it, then you can't be writing the code for it either. And, and their next statement is something that we hit on several chapters back, which is don't depend on the volatile things. Mm-hmm. So your databases, your file storage, that kind of stuff, like that's not things you should depend the on. The clock. The clock, right. You should you should mock those things as much as possible. And then that way, you know, you don't have these things that are so brittle. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So rather than writing, okay. So going back to like my mind being blown here, you know, typically the way I would have thought about like writing unit tests would be like, okay, I have this set of classes. I need to write, you know, as Joe put it, like there's this one-to-one mapping, you know, for the, the, the classes and then the unit test to make sure that all the functionality in that class is tested. Right. And basically what uncle Bob was saying here is like, rather than writing these unit tests against all of the production classes. Instead, write your tests against the API, allowing this primary application to change without worrying about breaking that many unit tests. Because you're not necessarily going after any individual one class necessarily, but, uh, but more the overall function of some purpose. And this whole API thing is basically coding to the contract is really all he's saying, right? Code against the abstraction, whatever whatever public interface was made, and not to the class. Because then, then the class can change and you don't care about it. As long as that class is fulfilling whatever that contract said it had to, you don't care what the implementation was. Well, kind of going backwards to what we were, t- you know, our conversation at the start where we were talking about the um, micros, the authentication microservice, right? So you might have some code within that service that handles um, the uh, decryption or encryption, you know, well, I guess you would be doing a... Um, well, I think where you're going with it, this... Let's uh, say if you were to, if this authentication was to create, if the, if this microservice was to, cre- to save these credentials, right, then you might want to do the initial encryption insulting uh, right and you wanted to make sure that like you were producing the same you know given the same uh you know inputs that you were always producing a consistent output right so you might be tempted to just test that one thing right in isolation and say like hey does this encryption layer work the way i think it does and what he's saying here is that rather than even bothering with that low level detail instead you would just focus on like writing a test that's about the api of like hey if I try to save a credential, does it get saved? Right. Period. Did it work? Right. Does does the overall intent of the thing work and not focus on the minutia of it? Which is interesting because you hear a lot about people saying code coverage, right? And it, and it's a and it's a thing even in tools that will mm-hmm. measure how much code coverage you've got with your tests. And this flies in the face of that too. This is no, just test against what your interfaces or your contracts say that you need to. 
Well, not, I don't know that I would necessarily word it that way because you could still have code coverage that goes across all of the intent of it without necessarily writing classes that focus in on a particular thing, right? So you could still focus in on like, you still have a test that's like, hey, did, you know, I, I called my uh, authentication service to you know, create these credentials, right? And to save those credentials. And did that work? Okay, fine. And part of that path may still include, um, you know, encrypting the password with some salt, right? And making sure that that works rather than having a class, a test class specifically for, hey, encrypt this and make sure that it, the output is right. So, but, I mean, it's still the same coverage. But isn't code coverage, doesn't that usually count how many methods have not been tested against? And that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, like, but you could still be calling all of those methods just, but but not specifically, not you're getting them implicit rather than explicitly calling them. By well, you could also configure method. the coverage tools so you say, here are my unit tests and only calculate the coverage for this like public API layer because oh, okay. we've cool. got a separate layer for it. So now we tell it to kind of ignore the other stuff because we say like, well, it doesn't really matter. That's just how the sauce is Implementation details, right. Yeah, nobody cares about how the sauce is made. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this still, I'm still shooting on this chapter. <laughs> yeah, honestly, th- that's a good way to put it. And, you know, he says that this testing API should have superpowers Outside the normal powers of a regular system user, therefore, it's probably best if it's deployed separately and never ships with your product. I love this one, by the way, because what they're saying is in your test, you're bypassing everything. You can assume that you've got super user rights. You can assume that you don't have any rights. You can assume whatever. You mock all that stuff out, Mm -hmm. right? So you definitely don't want to ship this code because now you could be potentially giving away the keys to the castle with some sort of hole, right? And and it's interesting. It it makes a lot of sense. You shouldn't be, if you run on a Windows network, you shouldn't be relying on AD in your unit test, right? You should be able to mock that user out to say that, yeah, you're a member of X, Y, and Z group and you've got God rights to everything. So I, I really like this one. It was an interesting take on it that I don't know I've seen embraced anywhere. Yeah. Basically, what I want is after having read this book, I want uh, Roy Osharov to write The Art of Unit Testing 2.0 as it relates to the testing API that Uncle Bob is suggesting here. Uh, and then maybe I'll be able to wrap my head around it more easily. I think you can write that book. You just call it The Art of Unit Testing with Good Architecture. I think that's a uh, that's with, a good title. With good, not clean, with good, but with good. good. With Good Architecture. Yeah, we don't want to see anybody's title. Right, right. Just the first one. <laughs> <laughs> the chapter should have came with a disclaimer, like, we'll rock your world. Yes, we'll hurt your brain. All right. So now we get into something that I don't think any of us have a ton of experience in. I, I may be, I may be wrong. I think outlaw, you're probably the closest. I don't know. Well, you? I would have said no until I kind of read <laughs> some of the uh, generating SQL type stuff. Oh yeah. Like, oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. That's a good point. Yeah. So the, the name of this one was clean embedded systems. So man, the, it's funny when I, when I first read the, the title to this particular chapter, I was like, ah, eh. And then I started reading. I was like, okay, well, this is way more applicable than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, So like the first one, I love this statement that he makes. Software doesn't wear out, but it can be destroyed by unmanaged dependencies on firmware or hardware. And you're about to, and I'll let one of these guys get into it, you're about to get your head twisted around a little bit on what he means by firmware. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I had to look it up. Like I, I feel like I've used the word firmware for routers and all sorts of stuff. But like when you kept like talking about the differences between hardware and firmware, I had to go look it up. And what he means by firmware is, um, I lost, I lost. This is the very next line. Here you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, that's not what I was looking for. Someone else has to say it. Okay. Well, I'll definition. say this part then. He he says that firmware isn't firm because of where it is stored, rather what it depends on and how hard it is to change as the hardware changes. Okay. And I actually, I found the line I was looking for. And so I was like, well, what the heck is firmware to begin with? And uh, what I ended up finding in Wikipedia is that they call it the low level control for the device's specific hardware. So an example here might be um, some sort of uh, call to blink the power light. Right. So it's the things like that, that can be controlled via I don't want to say software because it's kind of in between software and hardware, right? So it's on read-only memory generally, not necessarily, but uh, for the most part, this is software that isn't going to change so much. All right. So here's the part that kind of drove it all home. And, and this <laughs> is this is where if you hear this and it doesn't make you twitch a little bit, then maybe you've been doing things great all these years. But this one, this is where I was like, okay, we're not just talking about embedded systems on a chip. Non-embedded developers also create firmware when they embed SQL statements in your code. That's so true. Same type thing if you're embedding HTML in your SQL mm -hmm. when you're returning stuff. Same type thing. You are, you are making hard, fast decisions on what your architecture, or not your architecture, on what your hardware, what your application is using and what it's doing. You've now basically yeah. created firmware because it is extremely hard to pivot off that. If you're entrenching yourself, depending on the software itself, you could be limiting yourself to particular hardware, as you mentioned, like ARM or you know whatever other kinds of hardware there is. <laughs> but also your operating system, um, your tech stack, all sorts of stuff. You're yeah. cementing your position. Yep. Yeah, I was going to embellish this a little bit because it doesn't just have to be like embedding your SQL statements. Right. We, you know, we've talked about this as... Um, you know, if you aren't careful and don't abstract away some of those dependencies, then you further tie yourself or marry yourself to them. So, for example, if uh, in your code it's, you know, like a quote known thing by um, some kind of dependency there that you're using SQL Server, for example. Well, you've now, uh, you know, it's become firmware because it's now hardened to SQL Server, right? Yep. And we've talked about Entity Framework. If you if you use Entity Framework with Link to SQL, guess what? You've now and, and we are not picking on Entity Framework. We both we all know and have loved and used Entity Framework. But if you don't draw those boundaries properly, then you have created firmware because you have tightly coupled your application to SQL Server via the Entity Framework. You know, bus we'll call it. So. It, it's it's really interesting when you think about it like this. That statement of software doesn't wear out. I mean, think about it. It can't. It's ones and zeros. It doesn't wear out, but it can completely be destroyed. And that's man, that's that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And um, Kent Beck, um, famous for a lot of unit testing, writing, and a lot of other stuff, um, had some really nice rules here that I think a lot of developers um, follow to some extent. And the first one was uh, first get it working. Right, I've definitely been there where like the first thing you're just trying to do is get something to show on screen that looks roughly like, you know, some, some approximation of what you're supposed to do. Then you try to make it right. That's step two. And then after that, you try to make it fast. 
And a lot of developers will just kind of stop after number two or sometimes number three, but there's no keep it clean step here. Right. And that's true. The make it right doesn't mean make it make it clean, doesn't mean make those boundaries. It just means, <laughs> okay, it's not as crapified as it was initially, right? Right. And, and, yeah, nowhere- and yeah, I guess you could define right to be different things, right? You could say right does mean clean, I, I suppose. Um, I just kind of interpreted it as you know actually correct, but maybe I'm wrong there. Well, and nowhere in here does it say to make it perfect. Like, we're not talking about perfection. No, no. And you should... I mean, this is probably a bad thing to say. You should never strive for perfection in your code. And the only reason I say that is chances are it's going to change tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Like, I mean, we've all done it. We've created code that we're super proud of. And then it's like, oh, man, I didn't think about this edge case. And then and then you go in and, and it's not as pretty as it was before. So don't strive for perfection. Strive for really good. Like don't ever don't ever walk away from a steaming pile and be like that's it <laughs> I'm done <laughs> you know but but you know perfection is is a uh, is a tough one in in programming yeah no one know when to call when yeah exactly yeah I remember we talked about the gold plating uh, anti pattern oh yeah uh, but I I do want to go ahead and make a retraction on a statement made about uh, two minutes ago <laughs> so first make it work. Second, make it right. I think to make it right does imply um, getting getting it clean and, and making sure that the things are maintainable. And then the third, making it fast. Like I, you know, I, I made the statement that uh, there was no fourth step, but I think that was implicit there in step two. All right then. Yeah, he says that if you're only going to focus on making it work, then you're doing everyone a disservice. Totally agree. Because you're going to have to maintain that thing. And there is more to software development than just making it work. That's actually where it you can draw the line between a good developer and somebody who's just getting paid to get the job done, honestly. So going back to a conversation we've had in the past about what's the difference between a junior and senior? That's a big one. That's the a big junior one. junior would just make it work? Yep. I got it done. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Uh all right, so uh, where were we at here? So so there's much more getting it to just work. Okay, so intermingling your software and your firmware is an anti-pattern. So what does that mean? And by the way, I pretty much hate the term anti-pattern, but it has relevance because I, I feel like some people just use the words to, to make it sound cool. Right? Oh, that's an anti-pattern. Well, I don't, okay. Right. I think it was bad habits. It's a bad habit, right? Yes. So, so the, the where I got kind of confused on this though was that like, well, if you intermingle the software and the firmware, then it's it's not it's no longer intermingling. The firmware is a virus. <laughs> if the if your software is it intermingles with the firmware, then the software has become firm. Yep. The firmware has infected it and it's become firmware. That's a good point. Yeah. It's no longer soft. So there is no such thing as intermingling software and firmware. That's, that's so, awesome. What we need to do here is create a humble layer that will do all the talking to the uh, the firmware. And then we can sit on top of that humble layer. And now we're protected from that virus. And we'll be able to use this code more, you know, more well, yeah, potentially other places and be able to test it and do all sorts of other good stuff with it. 
Nice, nice way to bring back in the uh, humble layer. That, that yep. was a good job. Yep, never forget humble yep. objects. Oh, <laughs> never forget. <laughs> so yeah, intermingled, intermingled, or let's say infected code resists changes. Mm-hmm. I, I actually like the infection because that's really if you if you, if you picture that, that's beautiful. Um, and and the worst are these make the entire system almost impossible to test, right? Or the changes are dangerous and require full regret regression tests. Which is so, going to make it even more difficult if yeah. you start embedding your your dependencies. Now you've got integration tests instead of unit tests, which we've talked about in the past, are really hard to do. So, yeah, and it also makes it really slow to work on too. Like, uh, you know, I've talked to people who work at uh, New Cash Register uh, NCR, and uh, you know, obviously it's not like this because it would be too slow to work on. But I've kind of joked about like every time you you make a code change, you got to publish to the ATM machine <laughs> you've got sitting next to your desk, and then you've got to get out your debit card and. And work on, you know, obviously that's a silly way to work because it's just too slow. But, uh, you know, a lot of us do kind of put up with that sort of stuff in other situations where we're relying on that hardware, that website, that whatever, really bring up the website, click, 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 wait, 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 click, click, didn't work, start over again. So we're introducing these cycles that are dependent on the bottleneck. And uh, that's because we don't have these kind of good. Uh, abstractions and good boundaries and good layers that we can kind of mock and play with in order to test more granularly. Yep. It's funny you bring them up as an example. I've actually been in their labs before. Oh, really? They really do have a room of all the various uh, ATMs. <laughs> wow. At some point, you kind of got to, right? You, you can't just to. say, like, works on my machine, <laughs> you know, now, roll it out to Bank of America. Now, in fairness, for what he's saying, you want to write your software in a way that it's abstracted away from the hardware so that you can write your your software independently of the hardware, but it's not a bad idea to test it on the right. hardware afterwards, right? So yeah. we're not saying that you shouldn't have it. We're just saying that it should be done in a way that you can, that you don't have that bottleneck. Yeah, you don't want to publish to that ATM because you're trying to get the uh, login, you know, the pin screen to be pixel perfect or something. It's just too slow. Right. So this is where the how comes in. It's the boundary between the software and the firmware. And so immediately you should think Space Odyssey 2001, (laughs) uh, you know, the HAL 2000. The HAL is the hardware abstraction layer. Uh, And this is where you abstract that hardware so that your firmware can be tested off hardware. Right. So you're making a firmware a little less firm. That's That's the objective here. It provides the service without revealing how. Yeah. And an example here I, like, I really liked is that you might have methods like indicate low battery or indicate error rather than LED blink, uh, LED blink five or LED blink three, which I'm sure you've at one point had some sort of hardware device where, you know, the different blinkings or maybe the different lights meant different things. Like why have that kind of blinking light code, you know, invade your code and poison your code? Uh, that you is can a have perfect a, a layer here that you can use to interact between. And then if you need to move this code, give it a life outside of this device, or maybe the device is upgraded or, um, you know, something else changes, then it's really easy to see exactly what needs to change in order to support that new hardware. So if you're on board with the concept then of the hardware abstraction layer, then this is where things get like rinse and repeat type of patterns. Again, every time the, the goal is to make the firmware a little less firm. And so you'll bring in a, a processor abstraction layer where you're trying to further decouple that, that firmware and the hardware from, uh, so that, you know, 
you want to you don't you don't want anything to know about the hardware registers, for example. Um, and again, you're just trying to your goal here is to be able to test off hardware as much as possible, and you know take that a step further to our operating system abstraction layer, so that uh, you know the OS can just be treated as a detail to protect yourself against from any dependencies that you have on it, right? So you're just you you keep putting these abstraction layers between your your firmware and ultimately the hardware. I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of what they probably did with the uh, Windows subsystem for Linux, right? They just stuck an abstraction in there and said, hey, treat this just like you would a Linux system. We, we don't care about the underlying architecture. Just make it fit, right? Here, here's the interface. Let's make this work like it. Well, just yeah, the now window- PowerShell. Yeah, Say again. Oh, uh, PowerShell now can, it can be uh, run on multiple different platforms as well, cross-platform. Mm-hmm. So same type of thing. I forget what they have, but they basically have a you know a, a abstraction layer now that sits on top of the operating system, and everything runs through that, and it just works magically. Awesome. Um, so that was PAL, and the same thing for operating system OSAL, but um, either way, access layer. Yep. And uh, yeah, we've said layers many, many times tonight. And uh, many times throughout the book, uh, layer architecture is premised on the idea of programming to interfaces and lets you do cool stuff like work vertically or horizontally or test your APIs or um, kind of slice stuff off and uh, support multiple devices for embedded architecture. Um, So it just seems like a really good idea. I mean, you can even use the layers for the the testing, which still, you know, wrapping my, my mind around. But it definitely seems like uh, the layers have been really core. Layers and dependency injection have been core to the whole concept of clean architecture. Yeah, he he wrapped this up in a different way instead of saying dependency injection, but substitutability, right? Right. By programming to the interfaces that you allow for substitutability. Which is the same thing as the whole plug-in notion and all that, right? Mm -hmm. Literally being able to swap things in and out. Yep, so... You know, a clean embedded architecture's software is testable off of the target hardware, off of the target operating system, and within layers because it, the modules interface through interfaces. Yep. Interface inception. <laughs> oh, so I had to say it. I'm sorry. And this is funny right here. They even say the if def. So uh, your, what are they called? Uh, Pound defines. Yeah, your directives. Yeah. Like your processor directives and that kind of stuff. They violate the dry principle when you have them sprinkled all over your code. We've never seen that. So, yeah, keep those isolated to a single file. And now that only it's it's like the switch statement or the if statement that is only going to work if you've got like that dependency injection or or you know some sort of substitute substitutability set up so you can actually swap classes in and out. Because uh, if you're just doing an if statement. In each of those functions, and you're repeating yourself, you know the same thing, right? You're 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 spreading that poison. So uh, whether it's a if diff there or an if, either way, you're doing the wrong thing according to clean architecture. I, I, ideally, you're going to be able to swap those things in, and you're still going to have those if diffs somewhere, but you're going to keep them one spot, and it's going to control which set of classes or which set of components gets used. Yeah, and this whole if def thing, just so for people who have no idea what we're talking about, those are things like uh, compiler directives. So that if you're in debug mode, then do this. If you're in production mode, do this. Yeah, but, I was, was going to give like a really good, uh, or, or actually, I guess, really bad example that I was guilty <laughs> of a long time ago, where like in my C code or even C plus plus code, I might do something like if def debug 
uh, and then r- log out some kind of message right. or print out some kind of message either to the console or to the lo- to a log, right? And you know, I'd have this stuff just sprinkled all throughout the code, and it was like really easy for me for a debugging purpose, you know, if def debug, if def debug, like just sprinkled all throughout it. But it did, you know, it, it goes against what he's saying here because I probably, you know, thinking back to it now, I would look at it and be like, oh, you know what? I should just have the one method that's going to print out whatever I wanted to print out, and inside of that one thing, then maybe it should be making the decision about like, hey, you know, if def, you know debug then do this um maybe that's the answer but you know another downside of that kind of thing having those if def statements in your code um, whether it be for this debug scenario that i'm describing or if def uh you know core i7 if def core i5 it breaks up the readability of your code totally which isn't one of the topics necessarily mentioned in here but definitely uh you know going back to clean code right you know the whole point is to make your functions readable immediately, right? Then uh, that totally interrupts the flow of the reading. And there's a complexity score in things like independent or any kind of static analysis things that will show you the the number of like, uh, uh, what are they called? Decision paths or whatever that, that can shoot up the complexity. And that would probably do it as well, right? I don't know if the if defs do though, because they get compiled and the, they're, they're the static analysis you're talking about is going to go on the... The compiled that's good, version. That's a good point. So your code's just hard to read. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a fair point. All right. So yeah, the next thing we got here is we say letting all code become firmware is bad right, for the obvious reasons that we just stated before. It's a virus. Yeah. So going back to the example that Alan started with about like, um, you know, if you start embedding your SQL into your code, well, we know that that's a bad thing, yeah. right? Uh, for one, you're doing like string construction of your SQL statements. Like you, we know that's a bad thing. Right. But now we can phrase that in a different way because we can say it as, oh, you've you've infected it. It's now become firmware. It's no longer soft. You can't change this thing. (laughs) You've gone down this path. Um, uh, Only being able to target or test on the target hardware is bad. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. If you got to have if you got to have the ATM sitting next to you everywhere you go, how are you going to do that at home? What if you've got a late night that you got to do something? You know, away from the office. Right. And hooked up to the bank too, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's a good like, point. Every time I need to test, it costs me 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And another way to think about that, though, is that it that also implies that you don't have unit test at all. Right. And we, we know from past experience that, like, not having unit test is a bad thing. So if you yep. can only test on the hardware, then that means that you don't have it. And um, because you don't have those unit tests, now you got to remember all of the use cases that have to be tested right. on the hardware. Yes, a little bit. So you got to have like a running like punch list of like here are the th- the things I need to make sure I do that you know, and yeah. that, or yeah. that Joe knows, or whoever worked on the system for the past ten years knows. Right, that some person has to manually go through and do, and not only that, but they got to be diligent. Yeah. that they do the exact input, or you know, and and make sure that they get the exact output, and don't get lazy thing. or Horrible don't mess up. Way to do it because humans, we are definitely fallible. You know, we're going to make mistakes. So if you're relying on a person to do that, it's going to fail. Yeah. And the thing is, is typically when you're working on a mundane task like that, your mind has a tendency not to focus as much. I mean, there's even a, there's a Netflix. We've talked about this. There's a program on Netflix called like a, a brain. Oh, what's brain games. Is it brain games? I think it is. I don't know where you're going. And so there, there's a show on Netflix that it, I highly recommend. It's called brain games. And 
it just shows you how your mind fills in the blanks. When your mind's bored, it literally just, I'll make this up. And, yep. and, and it's a real thing. Like it, it will blow your mind, uh, uh, you know, pun. But if you, if you watch it and you see some of the stuff, you're like, wow, I never realized that because my mind disengaged, it, you just start making mistakes. Well, here's a, here's taking this fr- from a different angle. Uh, I believe it was an MIT study that said that as long as you had all of the um, consonants in order, that you could remove any or all of the vowels out of the words and still write the sentence and it would still be readable and you you wouldn't even trip over trying to read it. You would immediately know what that sentence is trying to say. And so that's an example of what you're describing where in our, our minds will automatically fill in the gaps, right? But it might be critical to our application that we actually print out, you know, something exact and, you know, we need the software, we need that unit test to make sure that the exact thing was printed without some human's brain just going, Oh, well I can easily fill in the gaps and move on. Yep. So, yeah, and actually that's a nice teaser for the, we talked about doing a, a practice episode next. I'm not sure it'll be the next one, but we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be talking about that exact thing in uh, my presentation, talking about how your brain takes shortcuts for, for good and for bad. And that's why it's really important to build up good habits because when your brain <laughs> It's, it's so desperate to take those shortcuts and it desperately wants to be on autopilot that if you don't kind of have that good muscle memory built, built up, if you haven't codified good habits, then it's really easy to slip into really bad habits. And if you're in Orlando this coming, well, this probably won't be out by the time you do it. Ah, doggone it. Well, hopefully yep. you did an awesome job <laughs> by the time yep. this is released, but yes. I'm going to make some videos eventually. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear or see the video, you should like come kick me and make sure I get it done. That's right. And then, so wrapping this all up, what have we learned in this book? So there are more chapters just, just as a heads up. Um, But we've, I think we've fairly thoroughly covered, I think what are the most important and, and just really uh, main points that this book tries to drive home. And so, Following the principles outlined in this will help make your architecture and your code clean and maintainable for the you know foreseeable future. Yeah, the only section we didn't get to is the the details section. And there's a few things we skipped along the way, but the details just kind of dives into more specific examples of how to handle some of weird situations that that come up, and it probably covers a lot of the weird things that we brought up too. Yep. So uh, I'm gonna keep on reading. And and if you know. Again, I highly recommend picking up the book. Like if, if you're not one of the winners, uh, you know, by, you know, leaving a comment on one of these, you know, pick it up. Check out our resources page. It's there. It's excellent. I mean, it'll make you think about code in a different way, not just something that you write in your codes clean, but thinking about maintainable systems overall. So, uh, you know, obviously it's one of the uh, resources we really like, clean architecture, surprising. And then Brain Games, I found the link to it on Netflix. I've put that link in the uh, resources as well. Super fun show to watch, man. It, it will absolutely blow your mind. And Yeah, and, and I found the story about that. I had it wrong. It wasn't that their vowels were removed. It was just that you could replace, you could move them around in any order. And it was a Cambridge University, not an MIT study that did it. So I'll, We'll include some the links link, to that as the well. The link is fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Fake news. I, I, I'm trying to find the original story, but that was like a Fox News story where it's all, everything is misspelled and it is hilarious. It's so beautiful. We'll, we'll include that link in there. And your mind really does just pick it up like it's nothing. Yep. All right. So 
Now it's my time for the favorite part of the show. Joe never did pick one, by the way, still. Um, it's the tip of the week. Yeah, I sure did. I don't remember. <laughs> Would you, you picked this one too, didn't you? Uh, no, it's the dankest memes. Oh, <laughs> that's, is, that, is that still a thing? All right, keep going. Yeah, someone erased the rules. We need to get those back in there. Yes, Sorry, Slack inside joke. All right. Yes. I know some people hate those. <laughs> All right, what you got? All right, my tip of the week is uh, this is a suggestion from Arlene because I've been talking about it nonstop forever in the Slack. Uh, why not hackathon? Um, I know being a card-carrying introvert that that I've been kind of scared of in the past, but after seeing uh, some of our friends uh, over at Wales uh, this past weekend um, done really, really awesome, cool, fun, neat things, I figure uh, I need to do it too. So I'm going to be signing up for one in Orlando, and I'm going to be giving it a shot. It's kind of like um, this weird health app slash game jam. So if you got an idea, let me know. And uh, I'm just going to, I guess I'm going to show up stag and just kind of see what, see what happens. So it may turn out terrible. Um, but I have really good resources to read on what to bring. Uh, both cynical developer, uh, James from Wales and uh, Jamie, uh, or God Progman, um, made videos and slash podcasts about what they kind of brought. And it's really kind of uh, interesting just to see what kind of things and tools and prep they did for these hackathons. And just watching like that YouTube video or listening to that episode, it's like, oh man, I really want to do this now. It's almost like a camping trip, but like way nerdier. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to watch that video too. All right. So That's for my me. tip of the week, I encourage you to sign up for a new feature that is right now, uh, you can sign up for early access for Visual Studio Live Share. Now you might say, wait a minute, but I like Visual Studio Code. Well, guess what? This works for that too. What this allows for is real-time remote pair programming within Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. So, uh, you know, Alan could have his environment already set up and running. You know, maybe he's got the connection to a database or whatnot, and he can send me the link. I can connect to his system, and in my instance of Visual Studio... I can edit his code. He can see me editing his code and I can run it against his system, but we can both work on it together. Yeah. I mean, it is incredibly cool. And there's, there's a couple of things to point out on this because I, I love this tip. One is it's your environment. If I send you a link, a share from mine, you load up your Visual Studio or your Visual Studio code, either mm -hmm. one, doesn't matter, with your theme, with your font size, with your layout, your Solution yep. Explorer could be in a different spot. It doesn't matter. It's yours, right? And then the other really cool part of this that is don't want to gloss over is he has to have no dependencies. Like if my app depends on Node.js and it's got to have Bower and it's got to have Grunt and Gulp and 5 million other dependencies – you don't have to have any of them. Like you are literally running off my system yep. with whatever code changes you want to make. Yep. So we're going to include that link in there and encourage you. We should all flood Microsoft with signup requests to this so that this thing can come out as soon as possible, because this might be like one of the most exciting technologies that have come out. I'm, I'm not joking. Like I'm super stoked about the idea of remote pair programming becoming super easy and plausible. Oh, it's so cool. And now one thing to note, 
you can download the extension. If you go into Visual Studio Code, you can actually look for this, the extension and you'll be able to download it, but you will not be able to use it because it'll want you to log in and it'll say, hey, you're not a part of the, the beta program mm-hmm. or, the, or the preview. So make sure that you do hit one of these links and go and try and get your, your sign-up approved for the, uh, the preview. That that's that's a killer tip. I agree. Like when I saw this, I was like, "Whoa, um, it, it's amazing!" All right, so mine. Uh, there was another thing that was just sort of mind blowing. So if you haven't heard about WebAssembly, it's basically compiled code that will run in a browser. In, in a nutshell, right? Like I, I don't think, it, and it's and it runs way faster than anything else that loads in because it's literally system level type calls that are that are working. It's so, like a small really efficient subset of javascript. Right? Yeah man, it, it is it is crazy fast. And and again it's compiled like it runs off if you're using .net code it's it's dlls if it's you know something else who knows what comes down. But it anyway, well, let's say let's back up just a moment. Let's give a maybe a super brief overview on webassembly. Okay. <clears throat> it's a like Joe said, it's a subset of JavaScript. But if you take a look at like how your JavaScript works today, you go to Amazon.com, you download some JavaScript. The first thing that your browser has to do is compile that so that it can run. So when Alan says that it's compiled, uh, compiled ba- binary that you're pulling down, what he's referring to is the JavaScript compilation has now been moved from the client back to the server so that the compilation is only happening the one time and getting shipped as in that binary form. So that's where it makes up its speed because you get to skip the compilation step. Yep. And here's the really cool part. So Microsoft has been putting in some effort called Blazor, B-L-A-Z-O-R. And what this is, is basically being able to write your entire web application with C Sharp and, and doing your templates like your view templates within Visual Studio. Like basically... Uh, bye-bye React, bye-bye Angular, bye-bye all these other front-end client frameworks or GUIs or views or whatever. Literally, you can have, if you if you want to boil it down to kind of what it is, it's basically ASP.NET MVC that gets compiled into WebAssembly and then just runs on the web. So you still have your CSHTML files that are like, um, I, I don't know if they're using Razor syntax. I think they are. I think that's why it's... It says they are. Yeah, so so you've basically got those templates and then you've got your C-sharp that you write that works with the data and you know pushes it in and out of the views. But then everything else is handled for you. Like if if the browser supports WebAssembly, it'll publish it in a WebAssembly app if it doesn't, it supposedly falls back. So for older browsers like IE8 or 9 or whatever, supposedly it'll fall back and use the regular JavaScript route. Like you're talking about being able to write full-blown applications and nothing but C-sharp and some HTML templates with some Razor syntax. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I was originally kind of pessimistic about it. I was like, you know, I've seen stuff that generates JavaScript before. I've seen stuff that generates uh, you know, HTML, and it's never been real great because it's separating me from the stuff that I want control over. But then I remember, well, what about, you know, how Unity generates WebAssembly and I'm able to do, like, to generate a, a full-on JavaScript game from anything I do in Unity. That's like 3D, 2D, like, that's really cool and it's been really great. And so I'm still kind of, like, wrapping my mind, my mind around what this can mean for the future, but it's really cool to think that, like, I can write something in C-sharp that runs 
you know, over here, maybe it's even a website. And now all of a sudden I'm maybe running my website all in the browser. I mean, I'm still trying to kind of understand it. And, you know, obviously I think that the main thing that they're after there is replacing those uh, or enabling those those other frameworks uh, to do kind of cool HTML stuff. But it can also mean really big other interesting things, just kind of like the opening up the, the 3D capabilities or um, translating 3D capabilities or whatever other capabilities of .NET into the browser. So it's going to be cool. Yeah, I think WebAssembly is like one of the most exciting things happening in the in web development right now. The fact that you can, you know, the, we will that there's this roadmap to where we're going to be able to do use strongly typed languages to write this code. If you want, you don't have to, but you know, uh, you know, because there's there's other languages that'll they'll support it. Um, you know, I just think I just find that exciting. Yeah, it's cool, and and on top of it, again, the speed. Like I've seen full-on 3D apps running mm-hmm. in the browser that's just like if it was running in an application, an EXE that you fired off on your computer, which is cool. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that you know you can see that they they came up with the name Blazor because it was kind of like a a play on the Razor part of this, which anyone that's not familiar with um, you know .NET development, Razor is the uh, engine for using uh, in .NET to create your MVC app. Um, the templating language? The yeah. view. Yeah, your templating view language. But because it's like R- C-sharp and Razor, you know, they could have gone like Crazer. Crazer. Or just crazy. <laughs> but I guess they didn't, I guess the, from a marketing point of view, they were like, that's probably not so good. Yeah. So, but, but I'm sure the blaze was on the speed though, thinking about it, right? Oh, I'm sure. So, a, a couple of things to note here. This is, this is open source. You can go to GitHub and go to the page. You could put in a pull request. You can take a look at all the stuff, which is amazing, right? Like the fact that companies are doing more and more of this, especially Microsoft being more open is awesome. If you want to play with this, what I would suggest, because this requires ASP.NET Core 2.0.4, or no, 2.1.4, which is bleeding edge stuff. What I'd recommend is probably go get a Docker image that has Ubuntu, like the latest version of Ubuntu on it. And then that way you can install .NET Core or get one of the images. Microsoft actually has Docker images that you can download with this already in it and run it that way, right? Don't, don't pollute your system with, with, you know, something that might not be ready for prime time. Uh, but definitely go play with it, man. Like it's really cool. You can go, you can go spin this thing up and, and download the Git repo and then run the thing. They've even got a demo up on the site and they've got a YouTube video. So I highly recommend checking it out. It's exciting where this stuff's headed. Definitely. All right. Who, who's doing the summary? <laughs> well, uh, I guess um, me. This episode, we talked about services, test layers, uh, embedded architecture, and uh, some tips of the week. And uh, that's it for the clean architecture. Uh, this is the penultimate episode here. Um, there's still a lot of stuff in the book, a lot Wait. more to it. So we heartily recommend. Wait, no, this isn't the penultimate. Isn't that what penultimate means? No, I think that's no. like the best of the best. No, penultimate would be the second to last. Is it? Penultimate. Second to the last. Is it last but one in ah, a series of things. I was second wrong to the last. too. Wow, you're totally right. I, the, yeah, I guess I should have just said the ultimate. <laughs> 
This well, is the last. <laughs> the last episode was the penultimate. By the way, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the way we worded it last time is we might come back to some of these topics in the future because yeah. there's still some. There's still a lot of book left with a lot of great topics, but we do want to move on to other topics. So, um, you know, hey, if you want to read the rest of this, then you should definitely leave a comment on this episode. You'll be able to find it at www.codingblocks.net slash episode 77. And you can leave a comment there on that episode for your chance to win a copy of this book. And with that, uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or more using your favorite podcast app. Be sure to leave us a review by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash review. Yep. While you're up there, go ahead and check out all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel. We have channels like books and uh, episode discussion and podcast chat where we talk about all the sort of stuff that we talk about on the show and architecture and, and this and that. So if that's interesting to you, then you can send yourself an invite to that Slack and hop on in hey. and uh, make sure to... Hey, no, keep going. <laughs> I was going to say, follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or heading over to CodingBlocks.net where you can find all our social links at the top of the page. Sorry, I, I had a I had a, uh, a moment of, of, I need to say this before I forget it. Yeah, if you guys are going to be in any of our areas, Orlando or the Atlanta area or something, and you want to hook up, you know, holler at us. Let us know. We, you know, we'll get out of the house. We'll, we'll come meet you. We're not totally socially awkward, so, you know, it might be all right. I'm so ready to get out of this house. <laughs> You look like you have something to say. <laughs> I was very tired. It's me? Yeah, you. Oh, <laughs> I was just kind of thinking when you said about the socially awkward, like we're not totally. I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm probably going to be socially awkward, but you know, that's just me. Yeah, it's all good. So, yep, that's it. Thanks. Thanks.